Hello, folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, a.k.a. Stephen Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visa blog and author of A Special Relationship, Trump, Epstein, and The Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visubview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-B-V-I-E-W, all one word, .blogspot.com. And procure a copy of that book and my other works at The Farm's official store, which is at thefarmpodcast.store. That is the farm podcast, all one word, dot store. And please consider signing up for the farm's patron. You get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive guests and content. Okay, guys, I've got a heavyweight trio of guests for today's show, all of them repeaters. Our first guest has been a writer for Project Censored, Daily Censored, and Truthout, among many others. He received the Project Censored Most Censored News Story of 2009-2010 award for his article, Neoliberalism, Charter Schools, and the Chicago Model, Obama and Duncan's Education Policy, Like Bush, Only Worse, which was published in Counterpunch on August 24, 2009. He has published more than seven books on education in the past 20 years, including Charter School Movement, History, Politics, Policies, Economics, and Effectiveness, and he has decades of activism stretching back to the anti-war movement of the 1960s. He moved to Nicaragua during the 1980s to support the Sandistas and fought against charter schools towards the end of the century and beyond. Finally, he has been investigating parapolitics for nearly 50 years. Folks, I give you guys the legend of Dr. Danny Weil. Danny, thank you so much for dropping by again today, sir. It's a joy to be with all of you today. Thank you for inviting me. All right. Our next guest up is the founder of the, as one of the founders of Public Eye Magazine and the Political Research Associates. He is best known for authoring the classic works Old Nazis, The New Right, and the Republican Party, and The Corps Connection. Folks, I give you guys the parapolitical legend, Russ Ballant. Russ, thank you so much for dropping by again today, sir. Uh, I'm happy to be here, too, and I consider it a privilege. Thank you very much. Awesome. And rounding out our cast is the former host of Futurequake and the author of The Must Read, Two Masters and Two Gospels, Volume 1. Doc Future is, uh, this is J. Michael Doc Future Bennett. He is with us, but has not yet been able to enter the chat due to technical difficulties, but he will be dropping by here shortly to provide his own unique insights. All right. So this is the second installment in the farm's uh, ongoing series chronicling the developments of the international fascist movement from its origins all the way up to present day. The first installment featured Danny Russ and myself discussing the origins of fascism in the interwar years, its spread, and the immediate aftermath of the Second World War. For this installment, we're going to get into the Cold War in earnest. Doc Future is going to join us for this one. Uh, bringing the collective experience of the researchers uh, up to about, I think, 150 years. So, yeah, guys, it's going to be that kind of a show. And uh, also, uh, I should probably point out a bit of a correction here. It does seem that uh, Paul Manning's excellent book on uh, the post-war Nazi Disarropa has been rep- has been reprinted, and you can now afford a copy of it without having to shell out nearly a thousand dollars. I certainly got my copy on Amazon uh, between this show and uh, the one that we had recorded previously about a month ago, and I would urge everybody listening to this to do so as well. It is littered with lots of amazing insights, certainly. 
And yeah. I see that uh, Mike is now with the Stock Future. How are you doing today, sir? Okay, maybe he's not quite with us in anything but spirit yet. All right. Mr. Sn uh, Mr. Reckless? Yes, yeah. sir. Sorry uh, to crash the uh, meeting there. I'm, I am here, finally. All right. Well, we got to have you here for this one, Mike. You are integral to laying out all of these connections for us here. All right. For this show, we are going to focus on the capital flights and how this paved the way for the reemergence of fascism in Germany and Japan in the post-war years. From there, we are going to track the infestation domestically, starting with the OSS, then considering the legacy of the glorious National Association of Manufacturers in all of this. You guys heard a lot about NAM in the last show, and you're going to hear even more about it in this one. And there's a reason for that. And on that note, let us get going. All right, Danny, I know to start out, you wanted to shore up the definitions of fascism we offered from the first episode by giving some examples of the different varieties. So have at it, sir. Okay, let me begin by saying, first of all, it's nice to meet you, Mike, and I'm, I'm looking forward Thank to what you have to say about NAM because um, it's, it's a part that I'm not that familiar with. I just want to begin by saying that for a lot of people, whether they're young or they're old or veterans of World War II or whatever, when they went to war to defeat fascism, they thought they were defeating fascism and they were really just defeating Hitler. They were not defeating fascism. Uh, as you'll see from the eradication from World War II uh, up into the, the, the historical time period we're at, fascism always been, has been about uh, destroying godless communism and a threat to capitalist civilizing mission. So since the colonial projects of Hitler and Mussolini are so brazen and we know them so well, it must be understood that, that there is a fascist international that is forming in the world today and has been, but is now unfolding at a much more rigorous pace. And we'll get into that in further shows. And that this fascist international uh, has to do with really the, the the judgment of many of us who study fascism uh, of the failures of capitalism. So who are some of the architects of the fascist international? I mean, uh, we can go back before I get into definitions, but really uh, the future head of the CIA from World War II was Alan Dulles. And without a doubt, the Dulles brothers going all the way back to the grandfather were indeed uh, invented the corporation. It was Sullivan and Cromwell, where Grandpa Dulles were, uh, having started in 1865, Sullivan and Cromwell had actually been around to finance the Civil War. Uh, all they do is finance war. They finance the Civil War, the Philippine War, the Cuban War. They financed, uh, they work for the United Fruit Company. They work for all the major cartels and corporations in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Uh, and then uh, the, uh, Dulles came aboard, uh, the, the old man in the 1900s, and uh, eventually, uh, they made, they made Panama, the country Panama, through a secret deal through foreign investors uh, in, in, in parts of Europe. The, the canal was originally supposed to go through Nicaragua. They carved up Colombia and they made, made uh, Panama. It's the actual creation of Cromwell and uh, the Dulles uh, and Sullivan connection. And uh, they financed uh, World War I with the Milner Group. And they financed uh, the end of World War I. Uh, they financed the Versailles Treaty. They financed all the reparations that were hurtled against the countries for World War I, especially Germany. 
they then financed the rise of Hitler. And they then financed at the end of the war when Hitler was defeated, they fought, they financed the, um, actually acted as money launderers to get the, uh, 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 the German loot. And we'll talk more about Japan and the golden lily money out of the various areas where it was hidden and into uh, corporation banks all over the world. So much can't really be told without going into Sullivan and Cromwell, but I know that that's not what the purpose of the show is. However, I wanted to mention that as a beginning because they were very big players in NAM, as I'm sure Mike knows. On definitions of fascism, I think it's important to point out that though fascism is, is usually associated with a, a European kind of a, a bonus, they call it fascism, a fascism that started really in France, uh, even though we had uh, Mosley up in, 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 in England at the time in the 1930s and 20s. Um, fascism usually has been associated with a, 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 a number of, of, of different items that usually resonate from Europe. But I, I would contend that there are different forms of fascism and that the fascism that we're facing today can be called clerical fascism in the United States. But before we get to that, I'd like to just speak about the, the, a couple of the different fascisms that I see. First of all, I, I agree with, with most uh, economic writers on fascism that it only appears as a management mechanism for an ailing capitalist economy. And that's what we saw with uh, Mussolini's Italy, and that's what we saw with uh, Hitler, and that's what we saw with Franco, and that's what we're seeing all over the world today as capitalism is, is basically failing today. Um, there is a, a theological fascism. Uh, this is very, very big in Latin America and also now in the United States. It can be called clerical fascism. It's generally Catholic in nature. Um, uh, many might know, many might not know, but there was just a meeting in Brazil uh, where this Catholic uh, uh, international has been uh, launched. Uh, and we'll get into that more in, in other shows. Uh, there's uh, a number of them uh, being launched. And then there's the, um, uh, what one could call the eugenic aspect of fascism, uh, which it, it really has its basis in the United States. In fact, if you look at fascism and what fascism really needs in order for it to survive, you can probably see that fascism has been around in the United States for a long, long time. So we go back to Bernays. Bernays made populism popular, okay? The foundation of all fascism is populism, right? dividing society between us and between them. And with the advent of Madison Avenue and the techniques that they developed, this wasn't a very difficult thing for either Hitler to use or the fascists in the United States to use, of which we talked about last show. And then there's a Manichaeism, which is really, uh, again, that division. So it's constructing the world in a series of binaries. You know, there's good guys and bad guys and communists and terrorists and, and so forth and so on. And that's one of the elemental uh, features of fascism. Fascism is always based on nationalism initially, but the fascism we see growing in the world today is a national fascism that wants to create an, what's called an intermarium, which is a, for example, international fascism today is talking about an alternative to the EU in, central, in the central uh, uh, Eastern uh, European countries setting up a, their own formal EU based on fascism. 
So initially it has to happen nationally for the people to get involved, but then it's, it's an international movement. In fact, you could say that fascism is privatization on steroids. That's really what it is. Everything is to be turned over to the state. All the companies are to pony up. No more labor unions. They become labor organizations. And we can talk more how another time later how, how some of this came about in some of the countries we're talking about. Xenophobia, of course, is big. We see this really big time in Latin America against indigenous people. Uh, the realist view. You know, this is the, uh, uh, the, the view of uh, Machiavelli or Hobbes, it's, you know, that, that, that we're doomed to live, you know, in, in war against all and that uh, all multiculturalism and all the alliances and treaties, all they do are, are advancing liberal democracies. And now that liberal democracies are dying all over the world, it's a very resonant message. Consolidation of power. We talked, I touched on that. There's no use of going back in. Usually a cult of personality, whether it's Orban in Hungary today or whether it's a Trump or a Mussolini or Hitler or Fra you know, Franco, whatever it happens to be. Um, Anti-opposition. There can be no opposition. All opposition must be squelched and by violent means if necessary, which is accounts for the free core that we talked about in the last session and accounts for a lot of the white supremacy we see today, the people that are being locked up. Um, they are being used as vehicles as well. Militarism, everything is to go to the military. Everything goes to the military to protect the state. Why? Because the state is everything. The state becomes everything. It becomes your household, your television set, <coughs> the, the news. Uh, in, in, in Hungary, 50% of all news is owned by the state. And ageism, ageism is a, is a big thing. There's a tendency to attract support and from older people and seniors um, who have sometimes a distinct lack of appeal for the young people. And uh, they want to hang on to a mythical past, which is always present in fascism. It's a notion of a, a mythical a past. So I wanted to mention these various forms of fascism only to distinguish them so that we could go on as we spoke and perhaps identify. Thank you, Danny. That was very well put. All right. To uh, pick up where we left off with the capital flights in the post-war years. Uh, so first off, Danny, who were some of the principal financiers that were behind all of this? All right. It, it, you know, it's the book 1944, and it's by George Seldes, the greatest journalist of the century last. Um, it's... Um, Chapter six, and I'm not going to read from it, the Nazi cartel plot in America. Uh, there was a meeting in uh, July 13th, 1942, and that meeting was held up in Canada. It was a secret meeting. It was supposed to be exposed. But there was a, um, a document that was taken from the meeting that was copied, and that document was delivered to George Seldes, an independent journalist in the United States. And in the document that was published, um, there were nine men in two, there were, at the meeting that took place, there were nine men, two of them represented Hitler and several leading American industrialists were there. There were members of the Congress of the United States, representatives of large businesses and political organizations like NAM. 
they met at the hotel, and he puts S, he won't finish the name of the hotel, in Boston on November 23rd, excuse me, in Boston, 1937. When Hitler was trying out what I was talking to you about, uh, Stephen, earlier, his Condor Legion. Um, Scorsini had come up with this Condor Legion for Hitler, and Hitler was trying to, uh, to use dive bombers and new tanks and Panzer Division men and Blitzkrieg tactics. And this was all... Um, Operation Condor Legion, which will lead into Operation Condor in Latin America when we get to that time. At this meeting, they wrote, a, they wrote out a memorandum that they all agreed to and they all signed. And he got the memorandum and he has the entire text of it. And there's quotes in it that I'm just going to read so that people can see as early as 1937, but much earlier than that. Our German guests emphasized that they didn't have any authority to give a viewpoint. Um, but they supported our trends in the American public opinion, and they're looking for the American German vote. And they had a second German guest who was recently appointed in Germany to a diplomatic point post. And he said, Germany, in quote, Germany has been grossly misrepresented before the American public by Jewish propaganda. In order to clarify the picture, he said, it's necessary to recall that Germany of the Republican period is thrown a remarkable confusion into the minds of Germans. And he goes on and he talks about trade union, wages, hours, unemployment, sick care, all that needs to go. What's a paramount achievement of national socialism, he asks. And, he's, and he goes on to, to discuss. Well, this document goes on for three or four pages and people can get it as deep as in, it's still available on, on print. But we know who was there a DuPont representative. Four of the most important facts of DuPont is that it controlled General Motors, $197 million in stock. It financed the Liberty League, the Sentinels, the Crusaders, and one dozen Native American fascist outfits. They were at the meeting. Uh, that's a no, that, that, was, that was a meeting in secret in, in violation of US laws, aided by Hitler. But of course, nobody was ever prosecuted. And the DuPonts betrayed military secrets to Hitler. Uh, they gave they, they, him uh, many of the military secrets that he used uh, in the war, um, munitions. He had con they, they had chemical interests with IG Farben, Thurman Arnold, uh, of Standard Oil. We went into much of this in our last show. But what I want, really want to jump to, and then I'll give up the floor, and that is, is the men who financed American fascism at the time of this meeting. And that was NAM, the National Association of Manufacturers. And it was headed by Lamont DuPont and Alfred P. Sloan. And the National Association of Managers was a union. And as much as they said they hated unions, they loved unions when they were capitalist unions. And the large majority of NAM members, okay, were allied with the Axis. They had a perfect model version of homegrown fascism. Okay, uh, the Lafette, Lafette Commission, Committee that came out in the 30s to publish some of this stuff that's kind of hidden from history was a warning to, to FDR about these people, about NAM, about Mussolini and NAM's re relationship to Mussolini. So NAM was a big, big player. They were guilty of bribery. They bribed uh, uh, many of the congressmen, representatives, and without going into all the names, they had hired gunmen. They had hired editors. 
They were, they are, and were one of the most un-American forces in the history of American history. Mike, um, <clears throat> Mike, did you have anything to uh, add at this point about NAM? Uh, you're, can you hear me? Yes, sir. Your timing is perfect because my microphone crashed about five seconds ago. So uh, my USB mic, I don't know what problem I'm having today. Um, uh, I, I was, uh, I lost your audio there for a little bit on the discussion, but I will say, you know, <clears throat> when you talk about fascism, uh, I'm sort of a piker in this area compared to the guests that you've had uh, the last couple of times because they spent their lifetime studying this. And I probably didn't know what team I was on until maybe 10, 15 years ago. So I'm playing catch up right now. But, you know, I was thinking about this, having listened to your last show on this for some time. And, and I was thinking if I had a working definition of fascism, at least on a, na on a national or public level, I would call it um, populist elitism. And... Uh, the reason why is that it is populist in that it needs a majority of the public to help undergird it, at least eventually. But it's elitist in how it looks at anything else outside of its fundamental culture or ethnicity. Uh, would you agree with me on that, Stephen? Yeah, yeah, I could definitely see where you're coming from with this. I mean, in a sense, it's almost like a cult set up to sort of uh, convince average people that they should revere and worship unbridled power. Well, you know, just to add some strength to that, um, uh, one, you know, really just has to look at Mussolini. I mean, Mussolini's pitch was all to the people, how he was going to give them unemployment and jobs, and he was going to give them their land back, and he was going to give them et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we know what happened. It was all given to the landowners and exactly what Mike just said. Well, that's so that populism is necessary. Right. That's, that's what you could call Trumpism, because Trumpism sounded very populist in that it seemed protectionist. It seemed protecting national interests. It didn't seem very corporate initially, but when you look at the supposed tax plan that Trump had approved that was supposed to be so good for the people, you suddenly notice that the whole windfall of tax breaks go to corporations in the capital gains tax reduction, um, the, the wonderful increase in the standard deduction that it gave actually was given with one hand and taken away with the, with the other because it was only if you took the, the standard deduction, if you had a home with a mortgage, you lost the ability to deduct it or your capital gains, you lost your exemptions. And so it was completely a facade. And I think this is consistent with fascism. It gives this facade that it's looking out for the little guy, but it's all a ruse to help the corporate people that assist it. But one thing that I have noticed in my limited time studying this is that while, while I describe it as a populist elitism in, in the fact that the group that it appeals to, it appeals to their xenophobia, yeah, their, their anti-ethnic, their, uh, their entire isolationist view toward others. Um, these, these organizations always have a sub-elite that are the ones who really benefit from it. They, they make a majority of the population feel like they're elites and they're protecting themselves from the unwatched masses or the barbarians at the gate. 
but in actuality, it's these, the sub-elite above them that are really dividing the spoils. And so I think that's consistent. I think that was consistent under Trumpism uh, and all uh, elitist movements like that. Now, to be fair, under communism, now communism is, uh, you know, it, it says that we're going to all share equally as, as individual workers. But, you know, in, as real human beings, you are going to have corruption. You're going to have party members who get their DACAs and other things. But that's a corruption issue apart from the original ideology. Within fascism, it really is part of the ideology itself. And so I think that's a, a to me, from my personal limited view, a very key discrimination. Now, part of the reason why I think fascist nations and leaders like other fascist leaders elsewhere, in the same way that gangsters in, say, the Roaring Twenties of Chicago got along with other gangsters that had other turf in the city. If they were okay dividing up parts of the city, unless, you know, there came a time like a Valentine's Day massacre, their, their true collective enemy were the police or crusading government officials that were trying to look out for people who weren't part of the gangs. And so they had a collective threat for all of them. So they were willing to divide up territory uh, and be ruthless, in, in a sense, nationalistic on a local beat setting. Uh, to offset any kind of organization of collective groups of normal people to look out for them and their criminal activities. Does any of that idea make any sense to anybody there? Yeah, no, I mean, I can absolutely see what you're saying. I mean, <clears throat> but I mean, that, you know, in general, that sort of seems like, I mean, uh, the hierarchy that's, you know, used for the, uh, the power elite. Um, I mean, I always think that organized crime is really an excellent model for, I mean, I think how a lot of these different factions interact with one another. Um, but yes, it's very apt. Yeah. Go ahead, Russ, please. I, I didn't know if Russ was going to say something. Yeah, Russ, do you have anything to add? There it is. Yeah. Well, I, I basically, uh, you know, think that the class character is the central element of fascism. Um, you know, it uh, uses a mass appeal to create uh, 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 a uh, reactionary force at the service of ruling elites, the most reactionary elements of ru ruling elites, and they em employ them against uh, every form of uh, democratic uh, manifestation, um, and specifically to subordinate the, the working the working class, the farmers, the industrial workers, and so forth, to the interests of the uh, capitalist elite, and that's that's how I, I see fascism. Straight, and that's that's from Mussolini forward. <laughs> well, you know, I wanted to just add something to what Mike had said because I think uh, he's made some really good points. I found the quote from a, a Mussolini, and I think it's important. Uh, it's his first interview after becoming dictator in 1922. And this is what he's standing, you know, on the balcony and he's yelling at the masses. And he says, quote, I love the working classes. My dearest hope in life is to see them better treated and enjoying conditions of life worthy of citizens of a great nation. I don't believe in class war, but only in cooperation between classes. The fascist government will devote all its efforts to the creation of an agrarian democracy based on the principles of small ownership. 
The great estates must be handed over to peasant communities. The great capitalists of agriculture must submit to the process of harmonization of their rights with those of the peasant, unquote. This is how classical fascism always tries to legitimate itself on a class level, as Russ just said. And that's exactly what happened. And then we had the night of the night of the long knives on June 30th, 1934, where in Hitler's uh, the people believed a great deal of the, the upper people in his his coalition that agreed with, uh, with, with with what Mussolini said were taken out. But Hitler used was very clever in the way that, that Mike said, because Hitler said, look, he said, I and here's his quote. The Nazis, well, it's, it's not his quote, it's, it's, it's a quote from a from monthly review. The Nazis supported an extensive welfare state, but only for ethnically pure Germans. It included free higher education, family and child support, pensions, health insurance, publicly supported entertainment, vacation options. Okay, it was an economic expansion driven by demand by generating through spending on the infrastructure and the military, but only these things were given to that white ethnic class. And anybody outside that little group that, like Mike said, were given none of this. So, I mean, by 1938, Germany had full employment. Well, other capitalist countries were, were at 19% unemployment or more. And Germany had no unemployment at all. Because under fascism, you, you become the state. So there's employment is never an issue unless you're outside that circle. And you had international capital wanting to build them up and build up their capacity, industrial yeah. capacity for military uh, capacity. And that's where the, and that's where the metaphor that, that Mike brings up is really so apt. Because when, when Arnold Rothstein, the gang, a gangster in, in the United States, was killed in 1929 and he was murdered by Lucky Luciano and Meyer Lansky, they had him killed. They set up the National uh, Crime Syndicate. Okay. And the National Crime Syndicate operated under the wire for decades and decades and decades. It wasn't just made up of Italians. It was made up, just like Mike said, about the Jews that used to be enemies in their neighborhood were now partners in crime. Uh, there were Italians, there were Irish, there were, you know, every, but the National Crime Syndicate was governed by a board and the head of the board was, and this is the way you can see fascism. It's like a National Crime Syndicate. There's a board and then there's all these underlying tentacles that reach out and go do all the dirty business and then, yes, the industrialists have to kick in two, three percent of all their net or gross profit to the board. But the board makes all the decisions. And the board decides who gets hit, who doesn't get hit, where the gambling goes, where the gambling doesn't go. And then and the rest of the, the people are basically working for the National Syndicate board. And that's, that's, that's basically fascist. It's interesting, too, because, I mean, when you, you know, kind of look at... Um you know, again, kind of using the metaphor with organized crime and fascism, I mean, within this sort of international coalition, we're talking about, 
it seems contradictory to a lot of people because nationalism is used so much in the individual, you know, states and nations that have uh, been used to build up this international coalition. But, you know, conversely, this is really the same thing with, uh, you know, the syndicates, you know, I mean, again, usually gangs are organized along ethnic lines. You've got your Italian, uh, you know, gangs, you've got your Jewish ones, your Irish ones, your Cuban ones. And they're, you know, usually a lot of celebrations of their ethnicity within these gangs. Uh, but they still ultimately are a part of this, you know, overlocking syndicate that united the nation and, you know, probably now exists at a global level. You know, it's such the same thing with the uh, the international fascist movement that they're, that we are laying out for you guys in this series. Uh, could, Stephen, could, could I also add that um, I think two, two major elements of societies that are consistent in fascist movements in countries that they target as a core base of their populism are the military and the conservative religious elements of society. And I think that's a pretty consistent theme, albeit Catholic, uh, evangelical or other groups. Um, there's even no reason why Mormons or others couldn't be a part of that as well. But I think those are the two groups that are most gullible to the seduction of fascist teaching. And, you know, in my work, you're familiar enough with my work that I focus since I'm a practicing Christian, I focus on the fascistic seduction of the uh, evangelical community. And that's where most of my writing is. And that's why I show all roads lead through J. Howard Pugh from from the time of the Liberty League and the business plot uh, on till today. Um, but I do think that's something if, you know, if we're trying to peel the onion back on what's unique, you know, I, I sense from listening to your last show uh, on this topic and this one that we sort of dance around fascism like people talk about obscenity. They have a hard time defining it, but they know it when they see it. And, well, you know, it's not difficult to define it, uh, uh, Mike. It's tricky because it's adaptable to changing materials in subjective conditions within a capitalist system. Yeah. Fascism doesn't exist outside of a capitalist system. It is wedded to capitalism. It is the ultimate expression of capitalism in crisis. Those who own the means of production, the ruling class, begin to see that they've got an economic problem in their, their country. The wages aren't going up or they won't raise the wages. Or look at 2008 crisis, for example. Okay, they own the forces of production, which is the technology and industry. And the relations of productions are, are, are us, what we do and how we produce our daily lives. Well, they control that whole mechanism above. So it's very tricky to define fascism. And that's why I attempted to delineate the many fascists, because you are right. What you're talking about is theocratic clerical fascism. And that is what is appealing to people in the United States today. But that is not what appealed to people in Germany. They weren't Catholic, but the Catholic Church had a very small role in Germany. Nor did it appeal to people in, in, in Mussolini's Italy. Uh, he had to make a deal with the church. Uh, he right. hated the church. He and, hated and, and to be fair, while you've got the um, hard right element of the Catholic Church, they were part of the Rat Lions and um, the whole Gladio, Knights of Malta side, you also had the ones, in, you know, the um, ones who were fighting that in Central America. So in other words, there was, a, there was a major element of the Catholic Church that was fighting these fascists in Central America, but then you had a hard right element within that same Catholic Church that were supporting it. 
So that's why I've tried to not use as much a broad brush uh, with things. But I'm very much worried about the conservative evangelical culture where I come from, um, you know, that deploys this. But, you know, the way you define that is being a consequence of a decaying and collapsing uh, capitalistic structure makes me wonder about the industrial age in the second half of the 19th century in America, leading up to the Gilded Age and the robber barons and the pushback through um, the progressive movement, the social gospel and things like this. And then finally, the New Deal that led to this tenuous situation that they fear to collapse. And of course, the Great Depression was probably the greatest blow to them. So, so that would lead a fascistic expression of what they're doing really is an outgrowth of those three things, I would think, and why it would be more of a 20th century manifestation in America, be, because these things triggered limits to the extent of their control over post-industrial America. Well, Rush, I'll give no. you the floor before I jump in. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's not you know, fascism and its class character isn't how we see it. That's how uh, the ruling elite see it. You know, look at look at who organized the American Legion, you know, the Wall Street interests, and they sent, uh, you know, uh, research to, uh, to Europe to study how veterans organizations were used right. from the backbone of fascism. And, um, uh, they knew they knew what fascism was, and they wanted to emulate it. And those were the forces, that, you know, uh, when they formed the American Legion, they did it consciously, modeling it uh, on Mussolini, who was uh, honored as a honorary member of the American Legion and was uh, highly praised in the 1920s. By I think he was their man of the year, wasn't he? When he nominated yeah. as their man of the year. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah he had one of those. And so the, the, the elite see fascism as an a class instrument to control the masses, but, you know, by whatever propagandistic uh, manipulation is needed to create uh, an initial mandate and then uh, install the dictatorial power. So, uh, you know, I, I think that's, uh, they see it that way. And that's how I, and I think they're, they're absolutely right. That is how it is. <laughs> That's the way I see it too, Russ. But again, I would have to go back to some of the writings of, as we spoke about, of uh, Gerald Horn, uh, African-American historian, as well as George Jackson, a prisoner in San Quentin who was murdered. Um, and because they, they would say that fascism, well, basically, I mean, that they've always lived under fascism, that black people in America have always lived under either slavery or Jim Crow. Yeah. And yeah. For, so as for, for them, fascism, Fascism didn't start in the 20th century. It started in the 1600s. Yeah, you know, I, 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 under, I understand. Well, back back then, I mean, you're talking more of an analogy to serfdom, <laughs> which is right. a class exploitative condition, but it wasn't fascism because fascism uh, has to compulate, you know, uh, you know, create a mass base that, that the aristocrats never had to do. They just... No, but the Ku Klux Klan tried in 1866. Yeah. Oh, I, I understand. Oh, I know. I know. Um, the, uh, you know, the, um, yeah, the, the, ro the role of uh, the plantation owners and so forth. I mean, we're, we're talking about 
elitism and exploitation by any means necessary in all the, all these variations, you know? Yeah. And Mike, uh, I'm real interested in hearing your, your talk about, uh, you know, about NAM and the, uh, spiritual mobilization, uh, movement. I'm, uh, it's an area I'm, I, I need more education on. So I'm looking forward to your talk about this. Myself as well. Well, let's get jumped back in here to the history. Um, though this has been really fascinating hearing uh, the discussion about the definition of fascism, certainly. Um, but okay, so the rearmament of Germany and Japan. So Germany, Danny, take us through the Black Eagle and how that was used to bring the Nazis back to power in the post-war years. Oh my goodness, okay. Um, first of all, let me just make one mention that I had not mentioned before, just really briefly, that during uh, World War II, the Associated Press uh, cooperated with the Nazis. Um, uh, they had their own agency in Hitler's regime. Um, they helped uh, Hitler gain power. They helped him in 1933. Um, uh, they used uh, wide world photos to help him. They used press people to help him. Um, the whole Marine Corps of journalists uh, from the AP were uh, uh, helping him. The reason I mention that is because the AP is now owned by uh, the Moonies. Uh, so <laughs> I don't know how we get from one to the other. Hey, can, can you clarify that? I knew United Press International was owned by the Moonies. You're saying AP as well? I may be wrong. I mean, you may be, you, 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 if you have a computer there, look it up. Okay, I, mean, I will. I will. I, I, I knew they wrong. had United Press International. I just didn't know if they had AP because, I mean, that basically leaves us Reuters. So I yeah, was worried about that on the newswires. Rothschild. Yeah, no, I may be wrong. But I'm not wrong about Associated Press's help for Hitler and how he um, they lifted Hitler. That's in a Guardian uh, article from March 30th of 2016. Um, but basically, in terms of the money issue, okay. If there was a Red House report that people can pull online. Just type in Red House Report 1944. And it's when the German industrialists all got together in Strasbourg and they decided that they were going to lose the war and that they had to get the one-third of German wealth out of out of one third of the European wealth out of Europe and into safe havens and these safe havens they could then use to to organize a fourth Reich I mean they didn't look at themselves as losing the war they saw themselves as losing a battle not the war well how do they do it well the Martin Borman was really key to it he set up 750 corporations as I as I think I mentioned last show and I won't be trying not to repeat myself but these were in countries such as Belgium, Holland, Sweden, Luxembourg, Switzerland, and Argentina. Meanwhile, the Allied intelligence under the U.S. direction uh, uh, were tracking the movement of Nazi capital in, in an operation that was called Safe Haven. Okay, Operation Safe Haven. The U.S. was aware that there was a network of foreign companies that were created, and especially in Monaco in particular, where millions, hundreds of millions of dollars of Nazi gold was, was being taken. But they didn't know about all the submarines that were, that were taking bullion and art and jewelry and, I mean, everything to Argentina as well. And plus going through Sweden. But Alan Dulles knew a lot about this. Alan Dulles was one of the people that put together Operation Safe and so he knew a lot about where the money, the idea was to get the Nazi money 
groups before it could be repatriated back to the countries it was stolen from so that the United States could steal that money and use it to fight what they called Soviet Bolshevism all over the world. That's what all of it was about. It was an, it was an attempt to make sure that Germany wouldn't start another war. And in fact, Morgenthau, who was in FDR's cabinet, said they wanted to re reduce Germany to an agricultural country and never allow it to be an industrial country again. But this was all about German assets and blocking the transfer of German assets to neutral countries. And Dulles, the fascist that he was, aided and abetted the Nazis in getting the, the Nazi gold out. So the Reichs, Reichsbank gold loot, just the Reichsbank, we're not talking Deutsche Bank, just the Reichsbank uh, uh, loot um, uh, was taken by the U.S. And they found some Italian gold reserves. But the estimated amount of wealth looted by the Nazis only throughout Europe and Japan, the Nazis and Japan through Asia, is said to be some 280,000 metric tons of gold. And that doesn't include jewels, it doesn't include diamonds, and it doesn't include other treasures. So between Nazis and Japanese, 280,000 metric tons of gold. Where did it go? That's a question. What happened to it? Well, President he, Truman heard about it, and he came along, and he told Secretary War Henry Stimson, set up a Black Eagle Trust. And what we'll do is we'll re-smelter we, we'll re this, this gold. Okay, so they won't have any Nazis singing on it. All right. We'll re-smelter it, and we will use this. We'll put the same eagle symbol on it, but not it. And we'll use this to begin what was the post-war post era. Now, that was uh, the Japanese set up the M Fund, the Black Eagle Fund, and the Showa Fund. And there's so many names. But in Japan, and then I'm going to stop for a minute and let others jump in if they want. There were really, World War II was really about two wars. There was a war with, in Europe, but then there was a war in Asia. Now, in Asia, the, the Japanese had been conquering all of Asia since 1896. And they had been killing and raping and stealing everything. Uh, Kodama, the criminal uh, who was captured after World War II, accumulated $13 billion in World War II. Uh, he was a close, a had a close relationship with Emperor Hirohito. And when Kodama donated $100 million to the CIA in the 1940s. And he continued narcotics trafficking that he was involved in. They knew where the gold was. What happened is Jap Japan couldn't get a hold of all the gold that it hidden in the Philippines. There was so much gold that Japan had all over Asia, from islands to China, everywhere that they eventually knew the war was coming to an end. Once Borman's group met in 1944, Hirohito got wind of it. And he said, if Germany thinks the war's over, then the war's over. But we can't let our people down. We have suicide bombers that are dying for the homeland. We can't just go out and say the war's over. So we've got to surreptitiously get ourselves out of this war. And that's where McCarthy, MacArthur comes in, 
and, 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 and the other generals. But there, there, were, there were really two wars. And the War of the Pacific didn't end until 46. So the Japanese had to store these 280,000 metric tons or half a little whatever of gold. And what they did is they put it in mines in the Philippines, all over the Philippines. They had Filipino workers dig mines, then load all the gold into the mines. Then they had the Filipino workers go back inside the mines and they gave them alcohol. And then they blew the, the, the mine uh, openings up and all the people that inside died. But the, there was a map of the gold. Well, that map fell into the hands of Robert Lansdale, who was a general at the time, who later, who was a member of the OSS, actually. And they had to torture Yamashita, the emperors, or Yamashita is, the, the, I think, the correct pronunciation. This is all in the books by the Sebrings, by Sterling and Peggy Sebring. Um, they had to um, torture. They, they couldn't be seen torturing a general after the war. The United States. So they tortured the general chauffeur and made him give up all the sites where all everything was buried. And they went in and they pulled it out. Now, did they pull all of it out? No, but they pulled a great deal of it out. And what did they do with it? Well, they they put it in banks and corporations that had already been set up by Nazis, furthering basically a slush fund to be used against the Soviet Union. And I just want to say one thing in closing, because there's so much more and I don't want to take all the time here on the air. One thing in closing, and that is um, they set up a slush fund to fight the Soviet Union, the United States did. The Soviet Union lost 27 million people fighting Hitler. The Americans lost 400,000, right? Immediately after, World War II, we're fighting the Soviet Union. It was the plan all along. Yeah, it really uh, needs to be emphasized how uh, devastated Russia was after the uh, Second World War, um, which also makes the whole basis of the Cold War and uh, the growing uh, Russian military threat all the more ludicrous. Um, but I don't want to get too sidetracked on that. Um, before I turn the floor over to some other guests, though, I do want to point out um, <clears throat> a really interesting component of the Golden Lily thing, and that is uh, the seemingly epic amount of fraud that's been perpetuated in relation to it. Um, of course, uh, as far as Golden Lily goes, there is the there are these mythological gold certificates, and they might have even have been real ones at some point. <clears throat> But supposedly, as the story goes, um, for these gold, uh, you know, hordes uh, that Danny was describing, uh, there were gold certificates issued for them that were worth just obscene amounts of money, potentially in the trillions and so forth. And uh, as the story goes, there are these really exclusive uh, markets where they can be bought and sold on for phenomenal amounts of money. And of course, only the uh, VIPs of the world's elite have access to them. Uh, one of the guys who really pushed this narrative was a guy called Robert Booth Nichols, who uh, later turned up in the Enslaw affair and uh, has a really colorful career as a confidence man and sometime intelligence asset. Now, Nichols eventually hoodwinked a financier named Sam Israel III, who came from a rather prominent family. In fact, they had uh, ties in New Orleans to the Riley Coffee Company, if I remember correctly, that shows up in the Kennedy assassination. 
kind of bizarre synchronicity to that. Anyway, um, Sam turned over a rather uh, large chunk of money to uh, Robert Booth Nichols, who then mysteriously died, quote unquote, although uh, that's a matter of debate. And uh, when Sam tried to uh, sell one of these certificates, he was arrested and is, uh, I believe, currently still serving a rather lengthy uh, prison sentence for that. Uh, Nichols was associated with a whole bunch of other characters, uh, one of them being Ted Gunderson, uh, the infinite uh, conspiracy theorist, who was, I believe, the number five man in the FBI and never uh, saw anything amiss until he read Pawns in the Game upon retiring from the Bureau. Uh, Gunderson also is a rather colorful character as well. And um, another thing that I will add now uh, from my own experience, uh, I actually got copies of a uh, some of these gold certificates about uh, two years ago now uh, from another rather colorful, or they were allegedly linked to another rather colorful character, uh, Henry Fisher, who was also another kind of sometimes confidence man, sometimes intelligence asset. He had ties to Rupert Murdoch and then later Willis Cardo, though I do not believe uh, this was that particular Henry Fisher who was trying to pawn off these gold certificates. Uh, but regardless, uh, they do appear to have been used for another confidence scheme by another man with the name Henry Fisher, who was a member of the Association of Former Intelligence Officers, which is another very colorful organization that shows up in a lot of capers, including uh, recently the QAnon thing, which I will be uh, writing about my forthcoming book. Um, but the point that I'm trying to make with all of this in terms of funding and what have you, beyond uh, the actual gold certificates, there seems to have been a market developed by seemingly a lot of these ex-spooks and these assets where they would go around and run these confidence schemes, sometimes on rather wealthy individuals to collect money. And I'm sure a lot of this was for personal gain, but you cannot discount the fact that some of it was also used to finance uh, black market schemes and that type of thing as well. It's another really uh, interesting aspect of uh, this whole thing with the gold certificates that's, uh, or in the golden lily that's very little understood, but uh, certainly adds another uh, intriguing layer to the whole thing. So- Well, you know, you're, oh, talking, about, you're talking about what are called uh, 57s. They're issuance bonds known as 57s. I, I think that's what you're talking about. They came out of the M fund. They were called 57s. What, what happened is after becoming prime minister after the war, uh, Prime Minister Tanaka used, uh, he got the M fund. Richard Nixon gave the M fund back to the Japanese in 1968. Uh, if they would uh, 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 give him multi-million billion dollar kickback suit for his election campaign. He actually gave the M fund back, okay, according to the, to the to, to 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 Peggy and Sterling Sebring, to 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 the Prime Minister Tanaka, and then what happened is Tanaka began to make these 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 vehicles, these these bonds, and they were called 57s, and these certificates could be redeemed, redeemed, uh, counterfeited at the discretion of the, whoever controlled them. And among other, one of the people ruined by the 57s was a former deputy attorney general, Nor Norbert Schley. And he worked as a deputy attorney general to JFK. Okay. And he had to fight for his survival after he got stunned by the U.S. Department of Treasury over the M fund. Here's a short story in the brief. He claims that he has 57s that are issued by the Japanese government. 
and that they actually hide slush fund for M funds. It's just set up to control the Liberal Democratic Party that has always been the party in power, okay, under the emperor in Japan. It still is, okay? And there's some people say that, that crooks printed them. Other people say that they were not, that they were real. They were distributed overseas. He says he had clients that came to him with original bearer bear bonds called 57s and that he tried to cash one at a bank. And while he tried to cash one, he was indicted, prosecuted, bankrupt, and professionally ruined for the rest of his life. Um, former Secretary of State Alexander Haig was also tried to cash a 57 bond. Um, he was given the, the bond and tried to negotiate it with the help of a personal letter from George Herbert Walker Bush on behalf of Paraguay. There was a big fight between Paraguay and Japan. Japan wouldn't pay up something to Paraguay. There was a big economic fight. Nixon got involved. Haig got involved. Haig was sent to Paraguay to give them one of these bonds for the damage that was caused. He never got put in jail, but Norman Schley did, and it completely ruined his life. So we don't know really whether these 57s are real whether they can be redeemable if you're the right person. They're supposedly bearer bonds, which means that anybody that holds them can release them. But I just wanted to, to throw that in on top of your stories. Yeah, no, it's very intriguing. And I mean, another, you know, thing, um, with the, there's a group, uh, I'm sure a lot of the people who are uh, in this chat are familiar with, it's called the Sovereign Order of St. John, not the official Knights of Malta. This is the Shikshini group that uh, Charles Willoughby and a lot of these uh, other MacArthur um, generals were involved with uh, going back into the 50s and 60s. They turn up in the uh, Kennedy assassination and then uh, their later incarnation uh, headed by John Grady was implicated in the FBI's PatCon investigation during the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, but anyway, I have uh, a huge cache of documents, personal papers and stuff from various members. And um, it seems like it was almost a password, uh, you know, approaching Pichel, uh, the longtime grand chancellor, to bring up the, um, what was the guy's name, uh, Yashima? Or who was who the general who yeah. they... Uh, yeah, Yashimita. Yes, Yashimita. Yes, yes, yes. They mention him frequently, like in their letters and what have you. I mean, one, when a guy was applying for the SOSJ, the guy emphasized emphatically that he had developed a relationship with this general when he was in the um, Army CIC during the war. You know, they had talked all the time. He had developed a special relationship during their interrogation sessions. I mean, it's just interesting that he like went out of the way to bring that up at multiple points in his introductory letter to Pichel. But um, yeah, this this is the kind of thing that, you know, within these right wing circles, I mean, my kind of suspicion is that, you know, beginning with some of these MacArthur uh, veterans uh, from the Pacific Theater, they had heard about the M fund, you know, they knew that there was this actual, you know, stash of gold, and there may well have been the real bonds. But then, you know, when they got back home, they found that like, uh, you know, kind of using their insider information was a way to uh, run essentially a scam to raise money for their own efforts. I mean, it's a theory, but yeah, I mean, I do think that there is sort of a combination though of sort of the legitimacy of the actual potential bonds that were held at some point. And then, you know, these sort of grifts that have been run by a lot of these ex-military and spooks uh, for a lot of years. Uh, but Russ, Mike, do you guys have anything to add? Russ, do you want to go first? Uh, no, no, 
uh, six shinny nights. That's uh, that's another old memory. I think uh, uh, I think they were in uh, the American Security Council network too. Yeah, it was the I it was what the uh, coalition for coalition peace for peace through strength. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, yeah, they show yeah. up in a lot of interesting places. <laughs> yeah, they do. Um, I think uh, <clears throat> uh, I just want to uh, reiterate something, Steve, that you said at the beginning of the meeting about the importance of the uh, Paul Manning book, uh, Martin Borman, uh, that really talks about how <clears throat> uh, the, the post-war Nazi network set up their business empire and uh, financed it. It's an incredible book, published in 1973, but now available again. <laughs> and uh, it's worth the 20 bucks to order it uh, online to get the book. It's an important book to read. It opened it opened my eyes. I didn't know all all that rich detail. Uh, the elaboracy that they went through to, to yeah yeah do yeah. This. And the guy the guy that wrote the book uh, you know isn't your you know your typical researcher type. He's a CBS correspondent in World War II. He he hung he he could he could go to Alan Dulles's house and talk to him. <laughs> and, he was a bombardier pilot. Well, yeah, I, I see a picture of him in, the, in his book where he shows himself uh, as a, a CBS correspondent, but, you know, uh -huh. he also looks like he's in uniform. So, so, yeah. maybe, you know, he played all that, those roles, but uh, interesting book. He, he knows, he knew a lot of people in high levels to, and he had a lot of access. So that must be, you know, but he, he puts together a good story and he's pretty uncompromising to me in, in what I've read in it. Mark, and that's the title, just Martin Borman. Yeah, it's uh, another interesting thing, too, is uh, Borman kind of uh, cut his teeth working in the Free Corps as a lad as well. Uh, he was one of many Free Corps veterans who uh, eventually uh, achieved a senior position. And I always like to point out the Free Corps. Um, I don't think that they get enough attention for the role that they played in the rise of the Nazi movement. And in a lot of ways, uh, you know, the modern militia movement in the United States is uh, kind of a successor to that kind of ideology with this whole just sort of, because I mean, a lot of these free corps, you know, I mean, in the uh, aftermath of the First World War, I mean, they went into these full scale armed compounds, you know, and they just did training and they stockpiled these massive amounts of weapons and what have you. Uh, you know, not unlike what a lot of our militias do in uh, this day and age. So you know, they're very, um, very close comparisons. Very yeah. close comparison to the free course and what's going on in the United States today. Interestingly enough, um, this issue with Paraguay and the Golden Lily Funds, um, there was a German South American group. Uh, there was there were a number of funds set up from the Golden Lily. And if people don't know what the Golden Lily is, I don't want to take so much time in explaining it. It's a bunch of gold that was found uh, at the end of World War II by by by. Uh, the Allies taken from Japan, some of it given back to Japan. There was there was never, there were never never war crimes for anybody in Japan. Nobody uh, of any significance ever suffered in any war crimes of Japan. In fact, uh, MacArthur was involved in the entire administration of Japan's post-war economy, and he set up a number of funds. And one was the M fund, but there is there which out of that came these fifty sevens, uh, which we don't really know what's going on with. But he set up the Yosuya and the Keenan funds. Now, the Yosuya and the Keenan funds were employed by the MacArthur Group and Lansdale and their Japanese allies, who were the Yakuza and also the um, ex-war criminals. 
to manipulate Japanese and Asian affairs so that, again, it wouldn't go communist. Everything was fighting to preserve capitalism and hierarchy, et cetera. But MacArthur, MacArthur's fascist intelligence chief, which is Charles Willoughby, he used the Yosua Fund in conjunction with syndicates to affect a complete institutional arrangement in Japan afterwards. He was referred to as uh, MacArthur's lovable fascist. Um, and he controlled the Yasuya Fund. And there, if there was any dissent uh, where the money went, uh, the pay assassins, uh, uh, to keep the emperor in power. The Keenan Fund was named after Joseph B. Keenan, another MacArthur intimate, who was the chief prosecutor of the Tokyo War Crimes, which, of course, really never happened. Okay. Unlike Nuremberg, which was a falsehood, falsehood itself. Yeah. Uh, and some of this this treasure was had been entombed in the Philippines and was used to blackmail Japanese and American uh, 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 politicians. And among the participants in the recoveries of some of these gold lily caches in the Philippines and the private organizations, you will find the name General John Singlaw. And you will find the anti-world anti-communist league uh, involved in the golden lily funds. There are handwritten letters and diagrams uh, that you can get if you buy the book uh, from Smith the Seabrings wrote. And um, you'll find that Singlob is deeply involved, along with Robert Schweitzer of the National Security Council under President Reagan. Uh, Citibank CEO John Reed uh, was acting head of the New York Stock Exchange at the time uh, all this money was swirling around the world. He also presided over Citibank uh, and Santa Romana's gold, which was, comes from the Golden Lily as well. It, it, it was put in accounts in, in Citibank. Citibank got its boost through war profiteering and the money that came from the war. Okay, so um, the Seagraves described in this also say the last battle of the Pacific War when the POWs, now this is not known to a lot of people, POWs from World War II sued in the United States to get money back from Japan for the atrocities that they went through when they were put in concentration camps. Well, who ran to the rescue of Japan to make sure that they didn't have to pay any reparations? Then speaker of the wife, Foley, his wife was a paid consultant to Sumitomo, one of the big Zaibatsu conglomerates. Zaibatsu meaning a huge monopoly cartel conglomerates. And she went and played back and forth to make sure that the judge ruled that the returning POWs from Japan were eligible for actually no reparations from Japan. Wow. Um, you know, your, your mention of Singlob, you know, his, uh, <clears throat> and Willoughby, uh, reminds me that uh, Singlob started uh, his uh, so-called intelligence career in China uh, in, uh, uh, in a very first assignment. So he, he always had this uh, orientation toward the, the East. Uh, and Willoughby set up his own intelligence. I think it was called Allied Intelligence Group because he wanted to work outside the OSS. He didn't want, uh, he didn't trust the OSS uh, or the uh, federal agency. So MacArthur 
MacArthur and Willoughby set up their own intelligence agency and uh, use that as their networks in their theater operations. And it is the contention of many people that that intelligence agency was funded by gold and, and, and diamonds, jewelry, money from the Golden Lily to one fund or another. I thought you because, would say that. <laughs> yeah, um, no, that's that. But nobody knows where they got the money. That makes nobody sense. Knows. That, nobody that, knows where they got the money. Nobody knows. Now, yeah. you had mentioned, Russ, in your last in our last show, a great book called uh, Trading with the Enemy. Yes. By Charles Higgum. Yeah. Okay, which documents the role of Standard Oil and Chase Manhattan and IG Farben in, in developing uh, Nazi Germany. But what's, what's really interesting in, in, in the book is the royal, role of, 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 of McCloy. I forget his first name. George McCloy, I think. He was assistant secretary of the War Department during World War II. John. John McCloy. John McCloy, yes, excuse me. He blocked the execution of Nazi war criminals. He yes. forged a pact with Vichy regime of the pro-Nazi Admiral Darlin, you know, when the Nazis occupied France. He displaced Japanese Americans in California to internment camps. He refused to recommend the bombing of Nazi concentration camps to spare inmates on the grounds, quote, that the cost would be out of proportion to any of the possible benefits. He refused Jewish refugees entry into the United States. And when the curtain fell on the war, McCloy helped to shield Klaus Barbie, the butcher of Leon, who shows up in Bolivia for the Bolivia coup and a number of other places. And Barbie and other vicious dogs from Hitler's kennels were hidden out with the 370th Counterintelligence Corps. Um, and one of their keepers was Henry Kissinger soon enter Harvard as a McCloy protege. In 1949, McCloy returns to Germany as American high commissioner. And he, he commuted the death sentences of a number of Nazi criminals. He gave early releases to others. One was Alfred Krupp. He, he, he said, okay, forget it. We're not gonna prosecute it. Okay, who was convicted of using slave labor in armament factories. Another one, Holmar uh, 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 Schott. Okay, he made sure they gave early releases to him. Hallmark shot subsequently we went, went on to work on the payroll of Aristotle Onassis, just, <laughs> which is pretty incredible. In 1952, McCloy left Germany and <clears throat> to rearm his own law practice at home, and he became the president of Chase Manhattan Bank, director of a dozen blue chip corporations, legal counsel to the Seven Sisters of American Oil. He acquired the Noble Oil Firm during this time. We had interest in Tsarist Russia. It had been managed by the father of George Day, Morin Schlitt, Lee and Marina Oswald's best friend in Dallas. And, but busy as he was, McCloy found time to supervise the construction of the new Pentagon building. And that's why they nicknamed it McCloy's Folly. But here's a Nazi, I mean, right in the administration of the United States. You know, the, the importance of this history isn't just for uh, you know our curiosity. It's really for understanding the evolution of the Black International as we're living in it in these times. And uh, you know, right now, uh, those what would have been called um, anti-fascist groups in Europe, you know, political parties and movements and organizations, they've just about uh, gone out of existence. Uh, the only growing political forces right now are of the fascist and neo-Nazi character. And, um, it, you know, they're on the brink of power and 
Italy, you know, their role, uh, their role in Estonia. I mean, Estonia erected a monument to Nazi, uh, the Nazi uh, uh, Waffen SS Legion of Estonia, uh, you know, that was uh, such a, uh, an evil force in World War II. The, the current Estonia erects a monument to the to to that legion, and the Pentagon actually produced a video promoting this as a good thing. The yeah. U.S. Pentagon <laughs> did that. I'm not surprised. Uh, and so we got to, uh, you know, you know, always understand and looking at this as bizarre as all this history is, it, it gives us uh, a a clue of the trajectory that leads us to today. Well, and, that's the purpose that I bring it up. And, I know it is. I know it is. And, I, but I want to say that for the listeners, <laughs> Beth, right. you know, that we're not just, uh, you know, uh, scratching our heads for nothing here. No, this isn't an and, esoteric dialogue. Yeah. When, uh, when I, I met Charles Hyam, the author of trading with the enemy, um, uh, after his book was published, uh, to share some of the research I was doing with him. And uh, he said to me, he wrote in the book when he gave it to me, this is the top of the icebergs and we still have much more to learn. There you go. Got and, in what we don't know. Yeah, he had, he had more books that he could have done out of all the material. He had done years of research through the National Archives and had phenomenal amount. I think he had 80 boxes of material. And he called me at one point and asked if I'd be po possible for me to store it because he didn't know what to do with it anymore because oh, it was getting older. And I told him, I, I back back then I was renting an apartment in, uh, you know, on off of campus, and I I said I didn't I didn't have the capacity. Today, if I had that offer, that would be different, you know. <laughs> but I didn't then, and I don't know whatever happened to his stuff. Well, you know, Mike, I just want to mention something to you, and maybe just keep allow you to take the floor. Uh, if, if, depending on what Steve's got on mine, but it has to do with NAM. I mean, NAM funded the, the silver shirts. Uh, they funded uh, 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 <clears throat> figuratively, figuratively played a role in funding Mussolini's <clears throat> black shirts. They served as a bridge group between rich corporate owners and the public. And they picked up the banner of DuPont's free enterprise dog. And this was the dogma that was being pushed by the NAM at the time, free enterprise. And to remember, there was there was no uh, the cartels were being kind of reined in by uh, the, the first Roosevelt, and the NAM was of course against all that. They want they wanted cartels. So Dupont came out with what he called the free enterprise dogma, and it was Fulton Lewis Jr. of NAM who became the mouthpiece for NAM, and he used his radio program called Mutual Network to spend to to to, to spread the NAM propaganda to 3 million people daily heard all this crap. 3 million people daily heard about the free enterprise dogma, how communism is bad, how Mussolini is wonderful. Um, he denied the truth put out by the Lefebvre committee. He denied the truth put out by the Truman committees. Instead, he aired his own damn propaganda under the guise of your defense reporter. And just in closing this, and. After 1942 convention, NAM went on record supporting DuPont's free enterprise fully, and the convention adopted a plank of sole, full support for free enterprise. This is in the middle of the war. Full support for free enterprise, even if it hindered the war effort. In contrast, in 1942, the CIO convention went on record for winning the war. Well, let me take that out. 
and just I just want to mention the role of Nam in the funding of Hitler. And what Nam was not the only one. There was the Chamber of Commerce, the American Legion, the John Birch Society all came out of this. And, and the and congressional hearings in 1938, evidence was entered in the record showing that Nam was controlled and financed by 207 firms. Leading the list were General Motors, DuPont, Chrysler, National Steel, Pennsylvania Railroad. The leading contributors to Nam were also leading contributors to several pro-Nazi groups such as the American Liberty League, the Crusaders, the Sentinels, the Republic, the National Economy League. I mean, you can get lost in this stuff. Um, they met in offices at Standard Oil. They had 12 firms set up for getting money to, to Nazis. In 1943, uh, they had a committee and they pointed out that this, all this stuff came out. That's why Seldis was able to write this book, Targeting Nam, because this stuff is in the public record. It's just not in the public paper. Yeah. The 13 most powerful families in the United States and members of NAM, at the time that Seldis wrote his book in 1944, the 13 most powerful families in NAM were Ford, DuPont, Rockefeller, Mellon, McCormick, Hartford, Harkness, Duke, Pugh, Pitcairn, Clark, Reynolds, and Kress. And of these five that were in the plot against Roosevelt were DuPont, Mellon, Pugh, Pitcairn and Clark, Nam financed the plot to kill Roosevelt. The plot to seize the White House. Yes. Yeah. Jules Archer's book, 1971, I think, wasn't it? Something like that. Tells the story. But it's not, it, it, the, the, the teaching does not endure. And, and no, because it's, 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 it's like that 80, it's like the 80, Boxes of books that Russ couldn't store, unless they're photocopied and, 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 and somehow preserved, they'll go down in, into. Look, 1984 was really an instruction manual for the ruling class. I mean, that's what the book was. It was an instruction manual for how to run a fascist society for the ruling class. It was a novel to us when we read it, but to them, it was an instructional manual. So those 80 boxes, Russ probably went down the memory hole. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I wish I, my, I wish I could have done something different in reflection. I thought he, he would find, uh, you know, he was a man of, you know, well-connected individual. I thought he would find uh, a safe home for, but I, ne I never found out. He, he passed yeah. some years after that. Yeah. So, um, uh, I'm ready to hear what Mike has to say, if that's all right, Steve. And yeah, about Nam, Mike, please, it's perfect time. Well, um, if I, I, Steve, I don't know what your plan was as far as the questions you'd planned to go through. I thought you were going to talk a little bit about the Unification Church before we got into my Oh, section. yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's get into the, before we get into the Unification, yeah, let's get, or before we get into Nam proper, let's do the Unification Church here, like, I, right I quick. Care. I don't care, but I had some stuff to add to that. I, I'm afraid I'm going to say stuff that's just redundant or old news to your guest. I don't know if all your listeners is the case, but for the three of you all, it may be. But there is some information uh, that's going into my next volume of my next book. Uh, for a lot of my listeners are totally in the dark is the history of uh, uh, the Unification Church. And particularly, they're basically buying and owning the religious right which is, you know, a lot of my target audience. Um, 
I have some information to share on that. I can do sort of in advance of publication, but um, you know, I want to hear people who know more than I do about that share. If you want, you just let me know when it's appropriate. Oh, go for it. Now let's, uh, let's get into the unification church here. So yeah, Mike, do you want us to take it then? Well, uh, again, I, I'm only... Uh, oh, just to add like a quick interlude here too. And, you know, again, folks, I mean, this is still relevant. I mean, not just for the reasons that Mike is about to get into, but uh, I'd like to emphasize this again, Sean Moon, who's uh, heading uh, one of the offshoots of the Unification Church. He's a son of the founder. Uh, I cannot remember the name of the offshoot now around the farm. We call it the Church of the Machine Gun because they are quite fond of prancing around in full regale with... Uh, I think it's AK-47s or yeah, something like that. Yeah, the Church of the AK-47. Yeah, the Church of the AK-47. Sean Moon was in the Capitol on January 6th. Right. Okay, so these guys are still around. So, yeah, Mike, sorry. what do you got, man? Well, speaking of that gentleman who was the son, one of the sons of Reverend Moon when when it broke up into segments and parts, I, probably most of you gentlemen know now that... Uh, when they diversified the, I guess, billions of dollars now that they estimate the moon empire to become, they bought into a lot of uh, defense armament companies and run their own defense armament companies. And so that sort of helped facilitate him and his love affair with AR-15 is because they actually make Tommy guns and other automatic weapons. They're a major global defense supplier. I don't know if you were aware of that or not. Yes, but yeah, they're they're a major supplier of it. Now, the, uh, you're you are right. He was in the uh, January sixth insurrection. It's not clear whether he entered the Capitol building. He was just outside. He was tear gassed. Uh, he calls it a, um, according to the articles written in his quotes online, he he called it the new Boston Tea Party. So I see it more like the. Um, you know, beer hall push or, or, you know, the Munich uprising that was put down. But uh, anyway, that's how they see it as a tea party. And in May, it was announced that they have bought a new compound in Texas. So they're moving to red state area. They said they want to provide a safe refuge for people in the South and the West, which is what we know as the red state strongholds. And they have oh, just to just, just interject right quick. This compound too is rather near Waco, Texas, uh, specifically, yeah. which is probably yeah. something we'll be getting into in the next episode. Uh, but yes, yes, that's very interesting. Yeah, this becomes part of the symbology of the people on the hard right. You know, yeah, I don't know if you uh, had heard the other day, but uh, when they had one of these big meeting with government officials, they had brought a um, a flag that had flown during the insurrection on January 6th and they were using it for people to touch and to see. And they prayed when they brought it out, they had a prayer. Oh time. My, they did that for the beer hall push too. Exactly. the Nazi flag for that. Yeah. became a relic. Oh my God. That is unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. Where they would actually touch people to, it would, it would sanctify them. The blood of what was it? 14 or so of these uh, SA types that fell in the streets uh, and that it had blood on it, it would sanctify people. That, well, they now have flags from that that are now being used with religious leaders there and others, and they were using it to sort of sanctify the people there. But anyway, they have a compound, and what they're saying now is that, if I could share with you a little bit since we're on this topic, 
He's saying that America is dead. Now, I'm assuming you all were aware also that when they had their last meeting in Pennsylvania, when that was their center of operations, that Rod of Iron Ministries, by the way, is their, is their name, um, that Steve Bannon was actually there. That's right. And trying, trying to organize them and saying that the left was going to steal the Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania vote in the presidency. And, you know, guys like Steve Bannon see some utility in using these guys for this purpose. But um, what what he has said, if I could quote him real quick, uh, he says uh, that the leader of this church, uh, Sean is his Americanized name goes by Sean Moon. He says, we are in a death of America right now. And that's why, of course, God is allowing for our expansion. Um, he says some federal agents operate as a criminal cartel are in the process of stealing this presidential election. We need to prepare and train for the fight. Well, obviously, they have already prepared and trained for the fight, all of their followers already, because we've all seen that on TV and documentaries where they already are well versed in this. Um, so obviously what they're going to try to do is train larger numbers of people getting out to a place like Texas, where they can sort of do these kind of things unmolested. Um, he says, uh, it's obviously better if we can use our rights to freedom of speech assembly and to address, address seek redress of grievances. Otherwise we will have to fight physically with many dying. Uh, and so, um, you know, he, he's getting ready for this. Now, I, I, I don't know if you all also heard, too, that one of his followers in his church had a big inc- incident in Westchester, New York uh, this year um, where he had actually I think he was like slamming into some police cars and, and causing a big event. And when they went through, he attacked the police officers there. And when they went in to his uh, personal possessions in his vehicle, he found a possession of list of people to kill. So they already had a, 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 a list in there. Now this, this Reverend moon, Sean moon has already even prepared, you know, you don't know how much these people are so crazy and fringy. You don't know how much they're really going to have any ef- effect at all. But the fact is everybody's running to the fringes. And so sometimes the crazy you are, the bigger following you get in the days we're in he already has a written constitution ready now since America's died uh, for the future United States of John Ilguk. Uh, and he is now declaring this a sovereign and actual nation uh, in the culmination of the end of time as prophesied in biblical scripture. Brother. And he has inherited a kingly and messianic role from his father. Uh, and he's taking his rightful place as king of the second kingship of the kingdom of God. Now, I would have think that the kind of Bible believing Christians I was raised around in church would, would flee, you know, as fast as they could from something this crazy. However, I, I have since learned that most of all of our religious right leaders uh, embraced his father uh, clearly and all that he taught. And in fact, while we had Jerry Falwell getting Liberty university bailed out secretly and saved it from closing down under debt by Reverend moon, uh, he saved Tim LaHaye's ministry uh, and others that were deep in debt, uh, to which they then came to his defense uh, to, uh, you know, try to keep him out of jail, which they were unsuccessful in doing. But they totally embraced this guy, uh, which was antithetical to everything that they said that they taught. So yeah. these days we're in, I, nothing would surprise me 
that someone is more extreme like this will gravitate. Even the people here in my area, here in the greater Nashville area, they're in a church every week. They will find this very, very appealing. So um, I, I'm very, very concerned about the next few years that there's going to be more places like this. These guys would be more than ready to give the ideology cloaked in a little veneer of scripture for these guys to believe in lots of military training and weapons that are ready. Obviously, within their own church, they have an inexhaustible supply of automatic weaponry. They manufacture uh, them, yeah. And they're willing to go down. I mean, these guys are crazy enough. They're willing to uh, go down with the ship. Uh, so, you know, we could be into things that will make Guyana and People's Temple um, just look like, you know, a weekend in middle America compared to what we may be looking at uh, very soon. We may be seeing a lot of Masada kind of events um, going on soon. Now, would you like me to talk a little bit about some of the stuff, I, details I have on the, the history of the Unification Church or just give a little precursor from the verse five in my book about NAM and the religious connection? Give us the precursor because I'll point out now we've already done a pretty lengthy segment on the history of uh, the Unification Church and the okay. third installment in the Wackle series with uh, the sadly missed uh, Don Diligent or Ed Kaufman, alias Don Diligent, okay. a uh, Mooney defector who did a fabulous okay. job laying that out. But uh, take it with your new stuff, Doc. By the way, did you explain about how they operated Liberty University? No, I don't think we really got too much into the, we mostly got up to the Moonies until about the 70s, 80s or so. I think yeah. it was, we didn't get too much into the Liberty U stuff. Yeah, how they, uh, the chancellor of Liberty University was commissioned by uh, Reverend Moon himself to first infiltrate moral majority. Uh, I don't know if you gentlemen are that f familiar with that, but um are any of you all that familiar with the degree, the extent of their planned infiltration of their direct members into running the top religious right organizations? I, I don't know about the ties with the Unification Church Monies and uh, Liberty University in the way that you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, they provided the chant. Well, the second in command of Moral Majority was commissioned by Reverend Moon himself to infiltrate. Uh, the operation of Jerry Falwell and then Liberty. If, if I could share with you a minute, and if I get off track here, uh, Steve, you just let me know. Um, in, in my new book that'll be coming out here before long, uh, I wrote in here, uh, I took a transcript from, I went into the records of the Unification Church, and in their transcripts of their saved archives, I found a 1992 speech at the Unification Church International Leaders Conference. Uh, that, that I found in this, uh, it was translated by Bohi Pak into English. Uh, they had representative 96 nations. And I want to talk about three gentlemen. Are you all familiar with Robert Grant, Ronald Godwin, and Donald Sills? Uh, Grant was a top uh, Christian reconstructionist, as I recall. Yeah. Well, I, I, if, if you don't mind, I'll tell you a little bit more about him. But these three men were present at this Unification Church service. Um, and he direct, they were being commissioned. This was a commissioning service for them. And if I could share with you a little quote here, I, uh, Reverend Moon himself says, uh, 92, he says, what about Robert? He's telling the audience, what about Robert Grant, Ronald Godwin and Donald Sills without receiving a salary? Would you stay here fighting or would you run away? This is serious talk. I'm looking for that kind of champion, the type of men and women 
who would be absolutely dedicated, giving every ounce of their energy for the recreation of man in the world. How much do those distinguished gentlemen, referring to Grant, Goodwin, and Dr. Sills, practice true love? When America was liberal, father, talking to himself, helped Ronald Reagan to bring the national tradition in the right direction. By the same token to the liberal world, you will become a conservative. In a way, the liberal world represents satanic tradition. You represent God's tradition that will be known as God's conservative forces. When father came to this country as a missionary in 71, the first thing he did was knock on the door of all the big people, senators, congressmen, and secretaries, even the president himself in the Oval Office. That time I was looked at very scornfully. I said to myself, will you wait 10 or 20 years? Do you want to have more? He said, and then he looked directly at Sills, Grant, and Godwin, and he tells the audience, he says, well, look, they seem to be enjoying it. I wonder how much they will have become unificationist, talking about these three. But Father says they seem to be enjoying it. Father sees the presence of Dr. Ron Godwin, Dr. Bob Grant, Dr. Sills is very precious. Father looks at these precious three collaborators, supporters, and members of this great movement, almost like Jesus' three disciples. The three of them are really accomplished giants in our world. He says to these three men, he says, if you fulfill your mission, fine. If you don't fulfill your mission, that's fine, too. The reason you are responsible for the the first generation, it is very difficult to wipe out the concepts initially implanted in the first generation. Even Bob Grant, a great preacher, and Don Sills, a great preacher, and Ron Godwin, a great Christian leader, have been reading the Bible. Those three champions just bring them and work them day and night. Father Godwin invited, or Father invited Ron Godwin to join this great crusade, not because he's a great businessman, but more importantly, Father is concerned about Jerry Falwell, who represents the great Southern Baptist Christian community. He is not fulfilling his responsibility, so Father would like to see if Ron Godwin can fulfill it. Unless he knows me now, Jerry Falwell is in the position of a foreign person. Jerry Falwell cannot become president himself. He should be come together with Father and make the spiritual and moral foundation for a God-chosen man to be President of the United States. All Christian ministers must be re-educated. They must become new Christians. Unity with Reverend Moon is of vital importance. This is the key statement. An alliance between Christianity and Unification Church is vital. It's life or death for this country's future. Now, I'm not going to go ahead, but they further say we've commissioned you. uh, And uh, and then at this point, he has Dr. Grant, Dr. Sills, and Dr. Godwin stand up and grasp their hands together, holding them high. And then the father, Reverend Moon, comes to him and grasps their hands of the three. uh, And then uh, he basically commissions them for the work that the Unification Church gave them to do of infiltration. Now, um, just to tell you a little bit about Ron Godwin, Ron Godwin um, was closely connected with Jerry Falwell and, in fact, was the vice president of the moral majority. And he was basically the de facto guy running the operation. And he he ran it until about 87 when the moral majority started running out of steam. And then. Uh, Reverend Moon came to him and offered him a ton of money to run the Washington Times. And, you know, he knew that they were a crazy cult, but it says they offered me so much money I couldn't turn it down. Well, 
what they found out, and I have other sources, Washington Post, others quote it, one third of, I mean, we know they own the Washington Times, which was the main party organ of the conservatives in America. One third of all of the people working there were Unification Church members, writers, editors. It wasn't just ownership. They had totally infiltrated the day-to-day operations of, of the newspaper. Well, eventually he made his way back to uh, join back with Falwell because Falwell hated that he left because it was critical for the success of their religious right operation. So he came back, began running his operation again. Then they made him vice chancellor of Liberty University and chief operating officer. He, he had done ran all the major organizations there for 15 years at Liberty. And this is after he'd been commissioned in 92 to infiltrate these organizations and infiltrate again, Jerry Falwell's organization for him. Um, and that continued on for, I think, about another 12, 15 years that he ran long after Falwell Sr. died. Ironically, this gentleman was the last one to see Jerry Falwell alive. Uh, they had met with each other, and minutes after that is when Jerry Falwell Sr. died, is when he met with Godwin. The other two gentlemen, uh, I, I mentioned, uh, um, not Mr. Sills, yeah, Mr. Bob Grant, he was the founder of uh, Christian Voice, yes. and Christian Voice was one of the one of the very fundamental religious right organizations uh, that basically learned uh, all the telemarketing, how to get enormous list of people, particularly pastors, on board. Um, you know, tens of thousands of pastors that were part of this. They they were really one of the underpinnings to organize the religious right. Don Sills was the guy who organized the, uh, I think it was called the Religious Defense Organization. That was the main one that came to defense of Reverend Moon. But he had basically all pastors, all Christian pastors involved with this uh, to, to defend this. And these were the guys that were commissioned way back in 92. And they went straight to the top running basically everything of what I grew up around of the religious right with the strings being pulled, I, you know, I, I, I began to learn slowly over time how much his money had um, basically called the shots within groups like Tim LaHaye. He saved Tim LaHaye's organization going under. He saved Liberty University. And the interesting story about Liberty was that they were $110 million in debt. They, wow. were, they were losing their accreditation. Uh, this was in the, in the mid-90s. They were losing the accreditation. They had not paid their bondholders for years. And so the boom was coming down. When you don't pay your bondholders after several years, it allows the government to come in and shut down the operation because it's a fraudulent operation or, you know, uh, disperse the goods. And um, what Jerry Falwell announced, he says, we have some friends of the ministry that have stepped forward that are going to save our organization and bring that debt down to $20 million. Eventually, they named a couple gentlemen who were basically oil men in Texas who stepped forward, who were the guys who were the conduits to save it through something called, I think, the American Heritage Foundation. Well, thank goodness we had intrepid investigative reporters that didn't take that setting down. And Falwell, when there's been insinuations that Reverend Moon had something involved with this, he categorically denied it consistently in the press. But these investigative reporters found out 
that these gentlemen were cutouts and that money was being run through moon organizations through their hands and through this American Heritage Foundation to basically get just enough money to hose all of the creditors. These were Christian parents who were sending their kids there, people who wanted to have something for their kids to get a Christian education. Uh, what happened was they had just enough to give them pennies on the dollar what they had and to dispense with the bondholders, which is what saved the liberty. And right after that, they made uh, Dr. Godwin the vice chancellor and basically the chief operating officer of Liberty University, which is now the, the premier flagship Christian teaching organization uh, in America and basically the mouthpiece of the evangelical community as much as, as anybody else. Now, Dr. Grant also was a member of the uh, Council on National Policy, which I know comes up a lot as well, too. But um, they, all of the main organizations that I knew that were main religious right, um, Bible-believing Christian organizations, all had their fat taken out of the fire by Reverend Moon. And they're the ones who came to his defense when he finally was uh, jailed for tax evasion. Because as you all know, when you talk about the money transfer, what they discovered is most of the money of the unifications came from Japan. I don't know if you've covered this, Stephen, mostly, but. Oh, yeah, Japan yeah, yeah. Is a major source of they were well, just I'm carrying suitcases of cash. And, uh, uh, you know, if I can interject here, too, to sort of put the lineage of all of this into perspective for the listeners, um, one of the things that uh, Ed Kaufman has done, dil dil diligent, had been working on up to the uh, time of his death, uh, was some very compelling research indicating that Sun Moon had been an agent of the Japanese during the Second World War when he was a young man. Uh, certainly, it does seem that he was... Uh, spotted uh, by some element of the U.S. national security state during the military occupation of Korea. Uh, and then there's pretty much no question that there was a, a tie between uh, Moon's organization and the KCIA, uh, South right. Korea's intelligence service. But yeah, as Doc is saying, a lot of the funding for the Moon organization came from Japan. And specifically, it came from a lot of people connected to the Yakuza, uh, Yakuza right. the uh, Japanese, uh, major Japanese organized crime syndicate. So this, you know, among other things, indicates that there has been this long-standing fascist presence sponsoring this branch of the Christian right, and that a very obscene amount of it uh, was, let's just say, potentially bought and paid for with drug money, uh, which is another you, element that's you, never talked about. Pardon me, Danny? I was going to mention, since you mentioned that, uh, it, it's... The moon, the moon operation, the Moonies play a, a, a pivotal role, as as Mike just delineated. I'm not going to repeat it. Um, in what what I tried to distinguish in the beginning as theocratic fascism or clerical fascism, right? Um, due to the fact that of of their relationships to the the churches. But what's even more for me, even more mind boggling. Uh, because the Washington Times is still losing $100 million a year. It loses every year. The question at issue is, is where did Moon get his money? Now, we know that the church has substantial assets and had over time in shipbuilding, seafood company. They have one of the largest uh, shrimp companies in the world. Mm -hmm. Seafood company, vast real estate holdings, 
New Yorker Hotel, Washington Times, Pagan Law Motors in North Korea, Kim Ki-hoon, Unifications Church North America, Chairman reports that the church owns a dozen business subsidiaries in the U.S. worth $1.5 billion. In South Korea, the church-owned conglomerate Tongil Group deals in everything from ginseng to guns. The church's 13 Korean subsidiaries represent another 1.6 billion in assets, okay, according to a recent uh, Korean newspaper. Now, where did the money come from? It came from the Japanese. The Japanese were especially generous and self-sacrificial, with some members bankrupting themselves through personal loans from Moon, okay, because Moon was linked up with like-minded Japanese tycoons and ultranationalists um, who were accused of grievous war crimes during 1946 and 1948 Tokyo war crime trials. And one of Moon's backers was Yakuza Japanese mafia crime boss and fascist organizer Yoshio Kodama, okay, nice. who, who was let off the hook by Willoughby and his, and his pals. And the notorious Kodama earned his, his fame, fame as a looter of the Golden Lily. Okay. Yeah. And he was also an opium trader, an original financer of the ruling Liberal Party. Now, Moon got involved with Japan in that whole Lockheed Aircraft Corporation scandal in the 1970s. And that was a big, huge scandal. Um, but there is evidence that Japanese ultra-rightists, you know, um, not only are Yakuza, but they're what's now what, what, what we call Zaibatsu, which is... is, is it, it, so in the end of World War II, Japan had all these strict gun control laws and weapons for Yakuza, and they had to be smuggled in. And under Korean government patronage, the Unification Church owned and operated the Tongil Industries. And it's a weapon manufacturer at the time. It made rifles and components for M16 rifles. And it also operated a Yewa air gun company in Korea. And he was, since the end of World War II, Moon was selling arms to Korea. And in 1975, after the, a large conference, a Japanese importer of air rifles in Korea it was a shadow company. It was called Angus Arms Company. It wasn't registered. It wasn't in any corporate directory. And the rifleists, according to a political researcher in a memorandum to a House Subcommittee on International Relations in 78, says it belongs to the Shokyo Rengo and the Unification Church. Okay, he's moved to Pennsylvania. He's declared the uh, sanctuary church. But the, when you when you listen to what Mike was just saying about some of the things that that, that, that are being said about um, uh, uh, America uh, by 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 the current Sean Moon, Moon said all those things before. He said them in 1980. He bailed out. He'll Pat Robertson. Okay, even though Pat Robertson expressed, expressed some reservations to George W. Booth about this faith-based charity program because it would provide aid to Moon's organization. And, the, and this is where the Bushes come in, of course, with Moon. Bush, I mean, so much money giving uh, a senior, giving uh, lectures for, for Moon, okay? But, but Moon's got to have gotten his money from the Golden Lily. It had to have come from that slush fund because there's no other explanation as to how the billions upon billions, not to mention the acres of hundreds of thousands of acres of land he owns in Latin America and in Paraguay. I mean, it's just incredible. Now, now I would say from my references, um, 
this certainly maybe it wouldn't wouldn't justify all of this. You know, I, I had found uh, a 1984 congressional report uh, said that in the last nine years at that time, Moon had transferred eight hundred million dollars right. from Japan to the U.S. and that. Um, but some large amount of it was actually field work, actually. Uh, you know, we, we tend to think of the Japanese as being sort of non-religious kind of people, sort of a very secular, advanced, but they're highly superstitious. And so a lot of the money was out on the street, taking the unification people out, selling these um, trinkets like uh, vases that supposedly kept away evil spirits and all this stuff. And they did target the rich with that, too. Uh, housewives and others who were still superstitious about things. And they, they were able to bring in, I think 200 million a year they found from doing these sales, street sales. Now that doesn't preclude other surreptitious sources. You know, you mentioned the Yazuka, my references show that uh, they admitted that they had been bankrolling this since the late fifties. And when Bohe Pack uh, testified to Congress in 78, he already said that from the beginning that Moon and, and the church was getting money from the KCIA. Yeah. So, you know, from the beginning, it was an operation uh, set up for that. My, my main interest because of my niche that I'm in is the buying out of the uh, religious community here, you know, who, who's had a profound impact on my life and how easily that they were that they were bought and it still exists i don't know are 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 you all familiar with the fact that uh president trump uh spoke at you know uh, true mother you know moon's wife oh yeah at her yes. two months ago I saw that hey, mike uh yeah i did see that uh myself uh you know uh what, what your outline of uh, Robert Grant and Godwin and so forth uh, is uh, is helpful. Uh, I did a book in '91 uh, on the Coors family, and I talked about Grant then. And here, here's what I said, and see if uh, this uh, is helpful to you: uh, that uh, he was chairman of Chris, Christian Voice, uh, right. which is tied to shepherding discipleship. Did, are you familiar with the shepherding discipleship phenomenon? I'm familiar. I'm familiar with shepherding, but shepherding, yeah. I'm familiar with more. I don't want to use the term fringe, but in in more of a holiness kind of movement, like extreme charismatic. I know some people in West Virginia who had to get out of the shepherding movement because it basically is a totalitarian right. religious movement where. You have the, it, it reminds me a lot of what I've studied about the Baal Shem and like the Pale of Settlement in these Jewish communities where the, the chief rabbi decided every minutia of decision in your life. Right. That's what these, of course, any cult, that's the way it is. Yes. But uh, in a shepherding movement, who you dated, who you married, how you spent your money, what you did with everything was whoever the local shepherd was, was the micromanager. Yeah. That's what I understand of it. Yeah, and it's a pyramid structure. Your shepherd is submitted to a higher shepherd who's submitted to the higher shepherd who's submitted to the to the leader of the whole cult. And right, uh, I did, and I, think, I did some studies on some of these uh, groups. And I, if uh, if you were looking for more information about, sure. uh, you know, I'd be glad to share that with you. I would, I would love that. You know, I wrote a little bit about Coors. Again, I'm a, I'm a dabbler. So um, I had to dabble in everything that becomes part of the 
fringe parts of my core interest in my writing. And I wrote about the cores community, a lot about who the real cores people were and how they were the, the people who put Ronald Reagan on the map and were his funders throughout his entire history, you know, and really how despicable the kind of people they are. Uh, you know, when you actually know them personally and the impact they have on their community and things like that. But, yeah. uh, but yeah, that, that was, uh, something I just want to make clear is the connection that these guys had running this. And now we have fall, uh, have, a uh, um, Trump, uh, speaking at these events for, for the, you know, true parent mother. Yeah. Now, I mean, this is a match made in heaven. I, I know Reverend Moon would have wished he could have seen the day that he would have seen a Trump, right? Such an easily buyable person that yeah. is turnkey for 40 something percent of our, American population that, you know, for a pittance of money and, and you've got a guy who's deeply, deeply in debt and the sharks are surrounding Donald Trump. If there was ever a, per, a great situation for the Unification Church to buy themselves a mouthpiece with a, you know, mesmeristic control over society, it's it's a total it's a perfect storm, I guess you could say. I think uh, Steve Bannon has told them that uh, their forces are part of our movement, and that probably was a factor in him uh, agreeing to be publicly present with them. Right. Well, well, yeah. Yeah. This goes this goes to the issue that uh, just to, to kind of contextualize this uh, again. My, for the show, for me, is is the claim that I'm attempting to make, and, I, and I'm hoping to prove that there is an international fascist movement that is growing in the world today that is highly connected, highly organized, it involves a ton of different organizations and ABCs we go through forever, all right? But, but, but the Moonies have a role to play. Mm -hmm. And the role to play is with the Christian identity movement and with the Christian right, or what you would call the Christian right. Right. But, there, the unification. I mean, Moon's program to instill discipline in, in his followers. He, he would show Nazi films on organizing Hitler Youth. Okay, I mean, Moon. Moon is he does what every oligarch does. He immediately buys a newspaper, immediately buys a radio a, a, a program, immediately buys television cables. Um, actually, the Moon organization and the fact that they own the Washington Times. Okay, is believed by a former member of the government, U.S. government. He believes that the Washington Times is operation operating in violation of the Foreign Agents Registration Act, which was passed in the 1930s. That means that every foreign agent had to register, and it requires entities whose activities are controlled by foreign governments and corporations to make financial and other formal disclosure in the Justice Department. Clarkson says the act was passed to expose covert Nazi funding of American German newspapers, but wasn't ever used against Moon. Right. Yeah. Uh, and the apartheid regime bought bought 20 percent interest in that through John McGough, who was a uh, newspaper publisher from Michigan who had deep ties to the apartheid regime and was uh, revealed in uh, in. Uh, prior to his role with Washington Times as being a, basically a South African agent. And it was through him, despite his, the exposure of his role, that uh, the South African regime acquired a 20% interest. So another 
you know, Foreign Agents Registration Act violation of major proportions. But this was being done while uh, Bill Casey ran the CIA and Reagan was president. So there was no enforcement. <laughs> yeah, well, can, can I understand from you, gentlemen, when you're talking about international fascism, would I be right to assume that on the European continent, you would include Vladimir Putin's fear within that greater fascism movement? Uh, the the, uh, the r- growing right hand of uh, Putin is a, a guy named Dugan, D-U-G-I-N. Right. Yeah. And, Alexander Dugan. Yeah. He's yeah. And he is um, he is openly and clearly embracing the the Nazi wing of the rightist forces in uh, Europe. Well, he's going further than that. He's put out what he calls now the fourth position. Well, I mean, I'm summarizing a sentence. Yeah, I, I realize it's more than a sentence. You're right. They put up what's called the fourth position. He's attempting to 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 create an axis within Central Europe, okay, and Russia um, that will counter Germany, um, and 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 uh, it's it's what's called the Imperium, and it's another program that we'll talk about. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, uh, I just one last thing on Moon, and then I know Stephen we go on. I just remember that I have here, Moon had a, a banquet in Buenos Aires some years ago, a decade or so ago, celebrating his new Spanish language newspaper for all of Latin America, okay? Mm-hmm. And, he's, and I live in Ecuador, so I know what I'm talking about here. Yeah. His guest at the event was George H.W. Bush, of course, who praised Moon's respect for editorial independence. Right. Full of praise for Moon. It says a report. Bush also described Moon as a man with a vision. Reuters said Bush later traveled with Moon to neighboring Uruguay to help him inaugurate a seminary in the capital of Montevideo to train 4,200 young Japanese women to spread the word of his church to the unification across Latin America. And Bush said, quote, I want to salute Reverend Moon, who is the founder of the Washington Times and of the new paper. And according to Reuters, he was paid $100,000 for his Buenos Aires appearance. But there are so many Spanish language newspapers down here that are owned by either the moon, Falun Gong. It's another one that's coming up now. Yeah, This is all part of the ideology that fascism needs. It's got to have some kind of cult ideology. The Moonies are more than a cult. The Moonies are a political movement. And they're essential in international fascism. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I would certainly agree with that. In fact, the irony is all of these religious right leaders that I was led to idolize growing up as a church-going uh, Bible Belt guy, they were joining in droves while at the same time he was running the Take Down the Cross movements, getting pastors to sign on to remove crosses from their churches and to bury them. They were even flying them to Israel where they would take down crosses because they stood in the way of the unification church's means to unite all religions. And so this is how quickly my fellow uh, Christian believers were willing to sell out fundamental tenets of what they believed for basically a pittance. You know, what we would call in a Bible vernacular, a a mess of porridge like uh, Esau got for a spiritual birthright. And so th- this is something that makes me want to tear my clothes, uh, you know, and put on ashes 
is 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 because I know what is authentic and I know this isn't. But yeah. talking about um, Dugan, you know what little I know under having studied Dugan, and of course he's a regular guest on the Alex Jones show. I see him more like a Rosenberg of the continental fascist movement in terms of developing the ideology and yeah. his whole thing between the battle of Rome and Carthage with right. Rome being the continental focused on um, collective uniformity, uh, power, strength, structure versus Carthage, which is independence, individualism minded island nations like the uk and the us and that there's going to be some existential structure you know struggle and their first plan is to take over the continent european continent is the third rome well this their most vocal supporters in this form of fascism in europe is the russian orthodox church because the russian orthodox church taught that they were the third rome after Constantinople and the entire European continent was theirs to have. And that's why the Russian Orthodox Church is critical in bringing about Putin's vision in, in carving out their part of the world for international fascism. And they also seduced Franklin Graham and a number of leaders here. Meanwhile, evangelicals are being persecuted in Russia. Their leaders here in the U.S. are embracing the uh, the patriarch, the Russian patriarch and his spokesman here in the United States and at the seminaries. So, you know, I see their sphere is very, very active in the world. Today. Now we're hearing them amassing on the border of uh, believe it's Ukraine again right now in the news right now. But, um, you know, the main outgrowth that I saw recently for the Unification Church obviously was in Central and South America. Mm -hmm. um, Bolivia, Paraguay, um, they're very clever. In my studies, what I understood is they brought in Mooney supporters, most of them from Japan, women and others, bringing in money and buying stocks in a bank in different countries in South America. So then they had majority ownership of the stock of the bank and then could use those banks to launder their money. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, to the point where Moon actually says we're going to be building underground submarine bases here in South America. Uh, to run what we're where did he get the money? And it had to have been gold lilies. It's just it, uh, there's no there's there's no you can't earn that kind of money. But you, you got to add to the fact that decades ago in, in the 70s, he had a, a license from the Pentagon to manufacture M16s. Yeah, that was a way of laundering you know, massive millions of dollars through the national security apparatus to the Mooney organization. Um, and uh, they were selling, uh, and I mentioned this in our last, the last time I was on, that they were um, also had uh, auto parts businesses and they were selling to North American manufacturers, auto parts made in Korea. And they owned the companies. Uh, and it was very hard to trace those parts, I, I, I made some effort to try and find out what was being put in what cars, you know, 
but that was very right. difficult to do. Yeah, and uh, you know, just but, describing uh, the business empire of the Moonies that you're saying, I mean, with shipping, uh, with real estate, I mean, you know, all of this stuff is big, you know, for drug trafficking, good. for arms trafficking. I mean, it's ideal for a lot of this kind of stuff. Uh, and certainly is like um, Russ is describing with the parts manufacturers and what have you as well. I mean, cars are another thing. I mean, in this sort of scam to transport contraband. So, I mean, I think the, the Moon organization, you know, really does earn the title Moon organization because it is in a lot of ways, essentially an organized crime syndicate. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think a lot of the business fronts have been used for a variety of things. And I mean, also to launder, I mean, a lot of this illicit money acquired for the Golden Lily and so forth as well. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's certainly interesting when you see, you know, just, I mean, how it's set up, I mean, to really facilitate this transference of all the contraband and so forth. Um, you, you know, they're, they're not the only pseudo religious organization. That has <laughs> LDS. Obviously, we, <laughs> Sorry. we know Scientology has that, but in, in my studies, the, um, the Greek Orthodox church, and I don't speak much against the Orthodox apart from the Russian Orthodox, which is the largest sect of it but the greek orthodox really came to the front in um the time when the the, the greek crisis the severe greek economic crisis of a few years ago where it looked like they were collapsed and they couldn't pay any of their bills or anything and what they discovered was that the greek orthodox church almost owned almost all of the main assets in the country and that wow. their their top leaders they discovered had been spending most of their time day trading and doing international finance. Wow. Uh, you know, even places like Mount Athos and others were involved in this, but they discovered at the time that basically their owners was the Greek Orthodox church. It's amazing that they, that they had to deal with to be able to come out of the mess they were in and they got to dictate terms uh, with this. So um you know, when I see like Donald Trump and others come to the news, the Unification Church, when I see what's happening in Texas, these aren't just historical uh, anomalies that have shadows today. These guys are alive and well. And guys like Steve Bannon, they know where their bread's buttered. They know where power is. And so you follow people like that and you know where there still is power or where these guys try to tap into it. Yes, and Bannon, of course, is a Duganist, and, and, and he believes in the fourth position, which Dugan is right. Dugan is making headways now in um, um, Sunni Muslim communities, uh, anti-Salafist Shiite communities. Um, his pitch is going way beyond Central Europe. Um, he's and this is again where we should cover it at some length of, at some time, Stephen, about uh, the the uh, the infiltration of fascists into the Middle East. In the, at the post-war of uh, uh, 1950s, uh, because that's where a lot of uh, fascists ended up, as you may know. And uh, in fact, uh, I don't know if you know, but Otto Scorsini was sent by Mossad. Otto Scorsini worked for Mossad. Yes, and, yes, he did. Actually, and, yeah, and I mean, that's that's another thing the Paul Manning book really gets into is the interesting relationship between Israel and the, uh, well, the uh, post-war Nazi network. I don't know if, if Manning mentions it in the book, but... Um, basically, uh, he was with his girlfriend one day uh, during the uh, in 1950s, 1952 or something, and um, uh, uh, they were at a, a, a friendly hotel. And two men approached him and said, "Can we sit down and have a drink with you?" And they said yes. And they sat down, and it looked like that maybe there was going to be some sex or something like that. Until 
um, uh, Scorzini uh, brought out a gun. He said, I know who you are. I know you're Mossad agents and I know you're here to kill me. And, they, and the reply was, if we were here to kill you, you would already be dead. We do not want to kill you. We want to use you. What do you want to use me for? We want to use you to send you to Egypt to, to, to make sure that the scientists do not develop the nuclear weapons uh, uh, that, uh, that can be used in tandem with the Soviet Union. And or, uh, Scorsini actually uh, uh, went to Egypt. He actually he was actually sent there by uh, uh, Reinhard Galen. Uh, but he went to Egypt in 1952 or 53. And I think the fellow's name was Fugel. I'm not exactly what his name was, but uh, there was a German scientist there that was uh, making great lengths and strides. And he said, look, there, uh, Fugel, you're in danger. You need, I, I need to whisk you away. Took him away in a white Mercedes and Scorzani himself uh, put the bullet in his head. So Scorzani went on to uh, train the Green Berets for the United States. Scorzani went on to uh, train Mossad agents. Scorzani went on to train uh, 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 Gaddafi. Uh, Scorzani went on to, to, to train uh, Arafat. I mean, Scorzani had the Paladin Corporation right there in Spain. And Spain was a free zone for fascists. Right. That's where many of them were sent and many of them operated out of Spain. And um, it's very important that that history be told because most people think of, well, you know, um, you know, Israel and Zionism and, and, you know, the Holocaust. And they'd never work with fascists and say, are you kidding? The list is so long of the fascists they worked with. Yeah, it's unbelievable. We had the problem, you know, it, it, Israel was uh, suppo supposed to be complicit with uh, helping Azov and the Nazis in the Ukraine That's uh, right. after, during the Maiden uprising. And let me, uh, you know, I, I, and I want, want to come back to that because Mikey mentioned something about uh, Russians uh, amassing on the border of Ukraine. Uh, that, that is coming out of U.S. sources. Okay. Uh, and whether it's true or not still has to be determined. Sure, uh, sure. Victoria Newland at the State Department was Assistant Secretary of State in 2014 when they organized the Azov Battalion, which is made up the Ukrainian Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, which was uh, a CIA asset recruited after World War II. They collaborated with the Germans and they conducted uh, 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 mass murders of Poles and Jews in the Ukraine. Uh, the organization Ukrainian Nationalists is a, was a very sinister organization, uh, you know, allied with Hitler. The, they were picked up with the Galen Org as part of the, the, the recruitment of the whole Waffen SS uh, capacity. That's right. Uh, and they were uh, they were used for covert operations. I, I've met with them. I've talked to them. They were they're part of the World Anti-Communist League. That was that was all a CIA apparatus. And, um, you know, when I went to their conferences, okay, I talked to them, you know, the guy, somebody from the National Security Council was there coaching and monitoring and reporting back to the White House as the conference went on, what was going on. This is in the 1980s. And that's where I, I talked to a lot of the Ukrainian nationalists and I met with them afterwards. And, you know, they told me that they were running operations basically through, you know, it was all done through Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, and yeah. under U.S. Uh, CIA sponsorship. So Victoria Nuland recruits these people to overthrow the elected government in Ukraine because they were going to um, make a big financial transaction with Russia instead of the U European Union. Russia gave them a better deal. And so they said, that's not your choice. You do what we say. And uh, 
she wound up using expletives uh, uh, against the European Union and saying we're we're in control here. And they when they overthrew the government, they put some of these Nazis into high positions as part of the, the payback. And then they organized them into militias. And these guys didn't have any arms at all. By the time two years within two years, they had tanks, they had artillery, and they were killing the uh, East Ukrainians who wouldn't go along with the coup and the government there. They said, you know, we're not part of that. And they, they, they organized their own militias and the uh, U.S. government sent in these uh, Nazi militias, Azov and se several others, uh, a C-19, I think was another one. And they sent them in and killed them. They, in 1989. That was what started the Civil War. And so Victoria Newland that ran that is now like the top is a, is a deputy secretary for policy at the State Department. And she's appointed by Biden. Appointed by Biden. Yeah, because Biden ran the operations for the Obama administration. He's up to his knees so, in Ukraine politics. Yeah. In 2018, we know now, in 2018, it came out, it's a 3,000 member neo Nazi formation in Ukraine's National Guard. Okay, the head of it is is Andrei Belesky, or he was in 2018 out of the Patriot of Ukraine. He's now now a Ukrainian National Guard unit. Okay, Vadim um, Troyum. These names I know won't go where, uh, but uh, it, the, the civilian arm of Azov is called the Ukrainian National Corps, and they're responsible, among other things, of coordinating with and recruiting neo Nazis and white supremacists around the world. And the international reach is led by Olena Semenyaka who's been photographed with a swastika flag. This is either, in 1989, George Bush shook hands with Gorbachev when the wall fell. And he said, I make you a promise, okay? We will never go east of Germany, okay? We will never move our troops east of Germany now that the wall has gone down. Now we're right at the border of, 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 of we'll never move our, our troops, meaning uh, to Russia, you know, to, toward the, to attack Russia. We'll never move our troops east of Germany toward Russia. Now we're right on the Russian border with these Ukrainian national force. There's a national Druzhina. That's the, Oz, the Azov Street Patrol Organization. That was established in 2018. It's got the aim of restoring Ukrainian order to the streets. Okay. Its members pledge personal loyalty to Dolesky. It's been involved in pogroms against Roma, LGBT, and other. Then there's right sector. So loose formation of neo-Nazis and football ultras, which supplied street mu a muscle during the Maidan uprising. They came out of Odessa. There's C-14, a Ukrainian neo-Nazi gang that receives government funding and has been responsible for Roma programs and LGBT violence. Okay, and 14 is the reference to the 14-word slogan of the white supremacy. Yeah, we yeah. are funding these people every day. These in, after the uh, the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, the U.S. government was very uh, involved in putting uh, a government that was uh, favorable to them. And the, the first things they did was to give pensions to the World War II Nazi collaborationist unit. The uh, there was a something called the uh, Galatian Division of the Washington SS, and uh, and it was also known as the First Ukrainian Division. And they they actually set up pensions to reward these guys for their war role in helping Germany and in, 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 in the extermination of Poles and Jews in Ukraine. 
And then they set up uh, statues all over the country uh, in name of Stefan Bandera, who was the World War II Nazi leader of the Ukrainian nationalists. You know, this stuff has been documented in the European press. The American press doesn't talk about it. Um, the English language European press. And there's, a, there's been a lot of uh, stuff about it, but- uh, And it's important well, to point out too- my, my, my posture, I just want to conclude with this. My posture is, is that neither side is deserving of the support from anybody with decency. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's very true. And, uh, you know, it should be pointed out too. I mean, the OUNB still exists to this day uh, oh, yes. in a more secretive right. form, but yes, it's it's still around. And yeah, I mean, it, it's latched on to, um, you know, people in the Biden administration. So like last time, Paul Ryan, uh, mm -hmm. he, he, he hosted a speech from a, a uniform leader of the neo-Nazi C-14, Sherry Bondar, when he was Republican House Majority Leader. They're all connected with the NATO-funded Atlantic Council um, and friendly exchanges on Capitol Hill. I mean, we could go into Ukraine, but Ukraine, you know, is, 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 is it's unbelievable. I yeah, it is. It is. But uh, well, hey, I, I would like to close and, and mention on a couple of things on that about uh, about Dugan. Uh, yeah. from what little I do know, I, I do know that he is claimed as a symbol of his methodology of taking over the continent, the chaos symbol with the round circle with the arrows all going in all directions out of it. Which which basically sort of goes, goes back to Crowley and, and stuff like that. Well, but, actually, it's misanthropic ideas of the British occultists and sadness of Alistair Crowley. That, that really informs Dugan's world. Well, actually, no, it was it was Austin uh, Osmond Spare, who was uh, the one who really came up with the sigil system. And it was later adopted heavily by um, Crowley's acolyte, Kenneth Grant, who helped uh, keep the flame alive for Spare. But uh, as far as his note, well, Crowley did have some interaction with Spare, but they weren't close, though. Well, I, I, I only bring that up to say that um, when you see all of these alt-right groups and things like this, this is becoming more and more the common symbol at the rumbles that they have on the streets. And of course, it was everywhere at the January 6th uprising. And I, this, to me, is one of the things that ties it into an international activity that's going on. And I'll just mention on the religious side, uh, I don't know if you are familiar with the Kansas City prophets, but yes. they're the big part of the apostolic movement in uh, a main part of the charismatic church, which is now becoming a dominant expression of evangelical Christianity here. And one of their top tier leaders, very top, is Lance Walnall. And I wrote a lot about him on my blog, the Two Spies Report, about um, his involvement leading up to the January 6th activity. And when he speaks privately, sort of off the cuff, sort of after hours on his, on his, uh, um, I don't know if it's Instagram or what he does, Facebook or whatever, uh, he sort of takes down that real pious persona from the crusade in what he does in this. And he talked about how uh, this whole thing was part of a plan of something bigger that's going and that he is currently working with the Trump family right now for something far, far bigger and they're going to be doing it this year. He called it the chaos tour. Wow. And, and he is going to be in the, and he leading the apostles are going to be bringing the Christian people into the chaos tour. 
Now, it's they may be just jumping onto words and using them and not understanding or, you know, they're triggering things. But that does raise the hair on my neck yes. when I hear it, anytime chaos. I know who's the author of chaos, ultimately, spiritually. Right, right. And when I see well, this, actually, is wasn't there, I thought I had heard something about how some of the Christian light figures had started using sigils or something to that effect. I mean, obviously, it's already been embraced by the alt-right really heavily, like in the meme campaigns and so forth. Right. Um, Mike, I have a question for you. Uh, yeah. Is Charisma Magazine still uh, promoting the Kansas City Prophets? As far as I know, they are. Okay. I, I yeah, as far as I know. there's. I mean, you know, everyone on them gets a black eye, but, you know, their process is to quietly rehabilitate anybody who's an embarrassment because they're moneymakers. Right. You know, they did that with Todd Bentley. Todd Bentley, who was like, you know, kicking elderly women in the stomach and you know, having affairs with, with the secretary and all this other stuff, uh, you know, you, you get, uh, you know, that, that brings even ties back to a branch of the Knights of Malta because Rick Joyner is one of their key people. Right. And he's gotten general Jerry Boykin, who's second in command of the family research council right. into the circles. And I have written in one of my books a lot about um, in his own, his own narrative about how he became part of another branch of the Knights of Malta um through a, a businessman in malta but that actually um they were contacted by the gentleman who was the guard of rudolf hess and the guard of rudolf hess was part of this other secretive part of the knights of malta they all went to hitler's bunker and met there kurt voltheim was part of it and this is all just from rick joiner the uh the yeah. prophet you know and teacher admitting all this and General Jerry Boykin, they were all they were all uh, commissioned into that branch of the Knights of Malta right there at the Heritage Grand Hotel that Jim Baker used to own uh, that they took over. Joiner right. um, goes way back 30 years with the Kansas City Prophets, doesn't he, Mike? Who does? Uh, Rick Joiner. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, he's back in the early days with C. Peter Wagner and and. and um, Yes, they have a group called the Oak Initiative, and I sort of joined it surreptitiously to find out what's going on. And in their insider newsletter, they talk about how they have an intelligence network inside the government uh, in ways to pull the strings and things like that. But Jerry Boykin is one of their more influential uh, people uh, in that. Mm -hmm. Of course, he said when Jesus comes back, he's going to be using an AK-47. So. He'll fit in good with that Texas crowd uh, down there as well, too. But I, I just wanted to close the loop on that, that that whole chaos tour thing is going to have a religious component, too. And I'm just amazed how gullible the Christian crowd I come from to jump right on board anything that's antithetical, you know, to their professed faith. But we're in for another couple of years of quite a Lulu. And, and Stephen, I know I've not really gotten into the what what little I can add to you guys on the NAM, but I would be glad to if you want me to switch. Yeah, well, that's what I was about to say. Let's uh, start getting into NAM here uh, as we close <laughs> out here. But before we get to Doc here, like I wanted to go into the John Birch Society because that was another creation of NAM. So, Danny, you have some stuff on that. You want to take that? Well, other than the, I mean, I, I'm not. Other than the fact that the John Birch Society. Brisson does a much better job than I could on this. Uh, uh, the job was, yes, it, it did come out of the, uh, 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 it came out of, it, it, 
again, the, all these societies, if you look at the 1950s, uh, if you look at the John Birchers or the Liberty League or the, the what about the YAF, uh, Young Americans for Freedom that Buckley came out of, okay? All of these groups were started. And I know that Dave Troy has a different, as a researcher, has a different take on this, but I don't, I don't have, I don't agree with it. All of these things were, these were started as anti-communist, anti-Soviet, anti-radical movements, both internally within America to prevent them and externally to beat the Soviet Union. So they all have their individual histories and they're all connected to the Nazis and they're all connected to the fascists. And they all took place in the 1950s. They came into being in the 1950s. Again, the question is issue is where did the money come from? And, and again, I, I, I just keep going back to these, this money that was taken out of Germany and Japan. I mean, can you imagine the amount of money and the, and the tributaries that it went to? So uh, maybe Steve, you could you could uh, speak more about the John Birch Society as an entity than than I probably could at this point. Well, certainly, um, you know the founder. Um, oh gosh, I'm drawing a blank now. Oh, Robert Welch. Welch, yes, 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 yes. I mean, he had been a member of NAM, as were several of the other uh, founding members of the John Birch Society in the early years. And I mean, certainly, you know, I mean, a lot of uh, the ideology of the modern day conspiratorial right, I mean, the kind of stuff that Alex Jones still parrots to this day grew out of the JBS. Uh, I mean, a lot of the, the tropes involving the Federal Reserve, UN peacekeepers, or just, you know, anti-UN type of stuff in general, uh, the international banker conspiracies. Um, you know, and that's kind of another, you know, sort of interesting component to a lot of this, uh, of all of the segments of the uh, economy that's attacked. It's always the bankers and a lot of this kind of literature. Uh, and I think that sort of goes into the ongoing rivalry between the, you know, heavy manufacturers and that type of thing in the banking sector. Um, certainly, you know, the Council on Foreign Relations was really the longtime lobby group for Wall Street and some of the successors of that, like the Trilats, or the Trilateral Commission, rather, and the, the Bilderberg Group. So hence, these are the types of groups that tend to get attacked in a lot of this literature, uh, you know, which isn't surprising, given that it's their rivals in the National Association of Manufacturers, and there's other kinds of bodies who have been sponsoring uh, the JBS and, you know, like outfits. So, you know, I mean, the JBS had an enormous degree of influence in that regard. And, um, you know, they really had become a powerhouse uh, quite significantly in the early uh, 1960s. Of course, they were probably instrumental in getting Goldwater uh, on the ticket, uh, probably to the delight of the JBS and some of their backers, uh, keeping uh, Nelson Rockefeller out and uh, really uh, breaking the stronghold that the Rockefeller family had on the Republican Party. Uh, so anyway, um, and then after that, uh, the JBS, you know, I mean, almost seemed to commit suicide in a sense in the mid 60s, uh, when Welch started going on on a lot of the more outlandish claims uh, involving, um, you know, the Illuminati and that kind of thing uh, around 66. Uh, but I think, you know, at heart, a lot of that had to do with the, you know, just sort of the fallout from the Kennedy assassination. 
uh, I mean, Peter Dale Scott has, of course, gotten into this, but, you know, you had sort of the phase one story, um, you know, that we all know that Laswell was this lone nut. And then there was the phase two story that, uh, you know, elements of the American Security Council will get to in a moment and the JBS and uh, the Shikshini Knights of Malta were putting out, which is that there was a conspiracy, but it was the Soviets uh, that were driving it. And, um, you know, this was really gaining a lot of traction uh, around 64. In fact, this was one of the big reasons why they did the Warren Commission in the first place is they thought that, you know, that they could kind of head off this sort of thinking that the Soviets were behind the Kennedy assassination. Right. So, you know, I think there was actually a bit of a concern that uh, the JBS had become a little too effective by that point, which is why. Welch kind of turns around and then starts talking about like the Illuminati and some of this other stuff, whereas like, up to that point, I mean, a lot of the things that they were talking about were, I mean, it had at least some basis in reality, you know what I'm saying? Um, so yeah, it's, it's a really interesting thing. That's another uh, topic I'm going to go to in my forthcoming book, actually, but yeah. Uh, you know, the JBS, though, I mean, really did have a profound influence. And then some of the, you know, other uh, stuff that's come out of it, like none dare call it a conspiracy, but Gary Allen and uh, what's his name, G. Edward Griffith, who did uh, the creature from Jekyll Island, and I think is still around and still promoting this kind of stuff. So, I mean, you know, this is very much, you know, when you see something like Alex Jones, this is very much his uh, legacy. Yeah. And, and uh, Wackle. And Wackle. Mm -hmm. And you'll, um, you'll remember that. You, I, I, I mean, I, I mean, Nixon was working with with with, with fascists in, in, in the 1940s. Uh, he accumulated strong connections with organized crime, Vatican hierarchy, fascists, and things like this. And the Young Americans for Freedom started in 1960, two months before the election of, 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 of William F. Buckley launched YAF. Now, I know that that's not the John Birch Society, but it's very, very close. Mm -hmm. And they were in Dallas and they had an interesting gang. They had Willoughby, they had Morris, they had Edwin Walker, they had, uh, uh, who bought a, a, brought, a, brought home from Newbeck, uh, they had uh, William Buckley, they had uh, CIA in Japan, John Tower. Um, in Dallas at the time of the assassination, um, Buckley served as CIA in Japan from 50 to 54. He did a stint in CIA in Mexico. Yeah, I was going to say it's in Mexico City, yeah. Uh, Danny, I wonder if, Mike, could you talk about NAM and the spiritual mobilization specifically? Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd be glad to, uh, because I'm interested in the effect on the Christian community with this. Yeah. Uh, the part of NAM that were all roads lead through J. Howard Pugh for me okay so that's that's where the buck starts to, to to land and even after i finished my last book two masters and two gospels volume one which is about like 480 pages of this stuff um i i found out more stuff about pew from his own records that rate that again raised my antenna enough that i'm going to put about a hundred page un, unplanned chapter in this next book about j howard pew um did did um, Stephen, have you talked anything about the material I presented at the 2020 uh, Strange Realities Conference, Adam, uh, Conspiracy Normal Conference there about J. Howard Pugh that I had found? Uh, just <clears throat> a little bit of the stuff about the was it the Bohemian Grove, uh, Grove meeting uh, between Pugh and I think it was Vannevar Bush, but that was about the extent of it. OK, because uh, a lot of that were records that I got 
out of his own personal records and in his archives at the university, but also uh, the the FBI records on him. And uh, he denied having funded the John Birch Society. But when when I went through independent records of the Birch Society themselves, I found out not only was he a funder, but he was one of their chief operating officers. Yeah, back in March 64, I found him as part of their adv- advisory committee. Who's he, this again, Mike? Huh? Who, who, wait, who's this again you're talking Jay about? Jay Pugh. The, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, they were. So, no, no. And yeah, Pew was another, advised. you know, big uh, National Association of Manufacturers uh, figure as well. If, if there's ever a place where the buck stops for building Christian right media, it's J.R. Pugh. He was the one to bankroll Christianity Today. He yeah. did Christian economics. He was the bankroller of spiritual mobilization. Um, he was the guy who, who had all this. Uh, but he, he led a double life that even at, at uh, what's it called? Not Smith Grove College. The college that he basically, he and his dad paid for. Uh, none of them pretended on this. He was a funder of Willis Carto. Are you all familiar with Willis Carto? Very yeah. much. All of us. Oh, yeah. yeah. He for also. Those of you I, listening who are not, uh, Willis Carto was uh, one of the founders of the Liberty Lobby, and this is you know interesting because uh, Mike, can you get into like when this was uh, when the funding was because a lot of this stuff kind of started around '58. That was when the Liberty Lobby was set up, right. when the JBS was set up. It was when the first attempt to set up Wackle occurred in Mexico City, which Carto allegedly was present for. Right. But, well, I. Uh... I show funding of Carto, I think at least up through 64, which was years after he had gone on the record with his hardcore anti-Semitic, uh, you know, his um, Holocaust denying positions. Um, and, and in the records I show from, and this is from Carto's records I had with letters from Pew uh, with his checks and giving him a pat on the back that was in my presentation uh, I put on there a quote from Alan Lickman, the historian, who who quoted from Pew's other writings that only the Anglo-Saxon people are conditioned for representative government, which basically sportsmanship and a sense of fair play to maintain. And Pew is so important, even though people may not know it in the Christian community, because there would not be Christianity today in our in our modern evangelical movement without him. He was the main bankroller of Billy Graham. First, Sid Richardson, the oil man, was the main guy. And then you had uh, William Randolph Hearst, who told you know all his papers to Puff Graham. Puff, he had his, LA, yep. his yep. L.A. thing. But um, J. Howard Pugh was the guy writing the checks. And, and in my first book, I, I show how Billy Graham had actually promised Pugh that if he would bankroll Christianity Today, they would speak out against unions and they would talk about how bad unions were and how the businessmen were right. And that would be the position of Christianity Today. In fact, I quote him from a sermon when he talked about, and this was right around the time he was bad-mouthing Martin Luther King. Uh, He was saying that the Garden of Eden was a wonderful place because there were no unions there. And he specifically targeted them. But now J. Howard Pugh um, was funding all these groups. And, and the thing about when I discovered he actually went to Bohemian Grove, which he was very one of these starched collar, 
very, very hyper pious Presbyterians. He was one of their main leaders of the National Presbyterian Church. He tried to take it over. He tried to have a corporate takeover of the non-business leadership of the entire denomination. But um, when he surreptitiously went to Bohemian Grove, the guy who invited him there, I show in my presentation from his records, was the head of the Sentinels. And the Sentinels were the group that were operating around the time of the business plot. They were the neo-Nazi group that he was was found out and went into the congressional record that he was funding the Sentinels mm -hmm. of the Republic and these other groups, as well as the Liberty Lobby. And he was one of the key operators of this business plot. But um, the Sentinel leadership was the one who in, invited him in there, you know, in the same camp, uh, caveman camp, where, you know, later uh, you'd find President Nixon. But he was there at the same time in 1947 when Vannevar Bush was there setting up the Cold War nuclear plans that same weekend at Bohemian Grove. Also, um, uh, I could jump in for a second. One of the I mean, the things about Vannevar Bush that's really not known. I mean, most people have looked at, you know, a lot of the stuff with the uh, MJ-12 nonsense. Right. But um, the important thing about Vannevar Bush, he was a key figure in setting up the first combination of the Committee for the Present Danger. There's been, uh, I think, four of them now up to this point. Uh, but I mean, he was very much one of the principal architects of the modern day military industrial complex. And he was also instrumental in urging for the merger of science and the military industrial complex. I mean, exactly. he was really the one who wanted to bring the army into funding a lot of these labs and stuff at these different universities. And he set up the national, or helped set up the national laboratory system, you know, Los Alamos, Sandia, all this other kind of stuff uh, that's, you know, really provided the brain power for the military industrial complex this is he was sort of an early dr strange love or he set the the structure in place for the dr strange loves mm -hmm. the gottliebs and others that had <laughs> infinite science at their disposal. And he was, you know, probably also one of the architects, even though he's not acknowledged a lot of the cybernetics movement, uh, the actual founder of that, uh, what's his name, Wigner or something like that. Uh, oh, gosh, noble. Shoot, I cannot yeah. remember his name, but uh, he was a protege of Vannevar Bush. And I mean, all this stuff kind of grew out of the Rad Lab and then later the Lincoln Laboratory that Bush had a lot of longtime connections to. So, you know, there was a lot of this kind of stuff that Bush yeah. was involved with. Well, the, the key where the National Association of, of uh, Manufacturers got involved basically developing Christian media goes back to 1940 when they had their national conference. Uh, it was televised live on radio, national radio, and they invited the first prosperity gospel preacher uh, Reverend James Feifeld. He was called the Apostle to the Millionaires. He was the guy who had gone out to the First Congregational Church of Los Angeles, 1935. Um, they were deep in debt. He basically started teaching a prosperity gospel message that wealth was a sign of God's favor. Same thing the Pharisees taught. He um, started saying businessmen were the saviors of society, and he started attracting guys like William Mullendore, who was the head of Southern California Edison, um, main industrialist, uh, Cecil B. DeMille, others with this pro-business, pro-prosperity message, quickly got the place out of debt. 
And when he was invited to speak there in December of 1940, when the National Association of Manufacturers had been spinning their wheels, they had upped their, their money and lobbying to try to improve the reputation of big business after the Great Depression. Uh, and, you know, still hadn't totally climbed out of it at that point, um, but had not been able to re rehabilitate their, their position. And also they felt they had an existential threat in the New Deal. And the guy who gave them the golden bullet was this um, uh, James Fifield, who, who explained to them and the radio audience that there was only one organization or group of people in society that still had the respect of the public, and that was the nation's clergy. And if they could fashion a pro-business message with a little veneer of, you know, spiritual Bible teaching, um, that the basically the clergy would be the Pied Pipers, I'm paraphrasing, to get the message out to the masses in America. And they thought that was absolutely ingenious because it's basically free salesmen that they have and they can be bought for a pittance. It's theocratic fascism. It's, it's clerical fascism. Well, to, to a large extent now, you know, Father Coughlin was doing his thing and you have elements of it prior, but yeah, really when it went- all under one umbrella. Well, yeah. I mean, under one umbrella, all these tentacles, but they're all doing the same thing. There's right. financiers that are financing them to go out and fool the masses. Right. Okay, with pie in the sky when you die, so that they can continue to buy politicians and keep the capitalist system going. And yeah. that's this is a, a Hitler used occultism. So in America, they use theological fascism. Well, they found he through spiritual mobilization. J. Howard Pugh and some other top CEOs like Frigidaire and a few at Chrysler, a few others started putting big bucks in his hands. Uh, there was a study done by the mid 40s that explained that, hey, you're, you're informing pastors, but you're not really telling them what to do to stop the New Deal. They invented the message that government itself was evil it, it, to a Christian audience and a Christian milieu that government itself was the real enemy uh, in taking away our freedom. So they diverted the threat that they provided to society, you know, through the industrial age and the ghettos and in the jungle and everything else that they had built. And they diverted it to the government as the real enemy. And that's well, what's by their mess. There's also something else that went along with that. And that was, this was, this was a time when the Soviet Union was strong and, and it, it was a time when anything that was socialist was condemned. So by, by, by uh, uh, linking up uh, you know, with, 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 with Christian fascists, okay, it made in heaven because socialism, they say, is atheistic. So if you're going to be for God, then you're going to be against yeah. the Soviet Union, and then you're going to be against the labor movement inside the United States that was 33% of the union you know, the, the working working class was unionized, so it, it was all part of an anti-socialist movement. Right. Well, the the problem they saw was that a lot of your major Christian uh, organized organizations, like National Council of Churches, other groups, had become more sympathetic to the social gospel. They thought that the New Deal had been a blessing to people who were, right. and actually, it stabilized our country. Because we were in the kind of instability after, you know, the crash, like Germany was in the 20s. 
And so it, it may have saved us from the fate that Germany went through in the 20s and 30s because people literally were paid to go back to work. And, and so most of your top Christian leaders were on board with that. And, and that was an existential threat. So what these guys did was bankrolled a complete re-education, particularly of a theologically conservative base in America, it, to the point that through their faith and freedom newsletters, through the spiritual mobilization organization they had, they um, shortly after this, they were doing competitions where if pastors would preach a pro-business sermon from the pulpit, they could receive $5,000. And wow. what I document in here was somewhere like 48,000 clergymen participated in that. Roughly 15% of the clergy in all of America were participating in this money under the table. Now, that's a kind of critical mass that a Rush Limbaugh or somebody like that would salivate over. To have the ear of that, you, you certainly need far less than that of the public to have a critical mass to turn the ship. And that's what they had through the clergy and through the, the top leaders in the, in, you know, I give all the details and the specifics and the name names, but Pew was center to that. He wasn't the only player. He formed a second organization along with Fightfield called Christian Economics through a, um, right. another, uh, and, and that organization had a similar message, even to the point that it was uh, pro-colonialism and saying that Africa should go back under a colonial system and referred to the British, the Americans and others as the, quote, investor nations. And the investor nations had a divine right to administer over the other nations of basically savages in the world. And so they really turned the ship of the viewpoint of the American person ultimately in the pulpit that did was finally convinced that spiritually somehow the Bible suggested government was evil and that it was always the enemy of free people and particularly big business that was trying to lead us out of this. The irony that I get later in the book is that the people who they used as spiritual spokesmen in these newsletters were nothing like conservative Christian leaders or conservative Christian beliefs. Their main writer on spiritual topics was a fellow by the name of Gerald Hurd, who was a the closest friend of Aldous Huxley that wrote Brave New World had immigrated to the U.S. to avoid the war, and he was the one that really started what we would now know as the New Age movement in Southern California. Uh, he was a peer with Krishnamurti. Uh, he, uh, right there in that same time when you had Manly P. Hall and, and uh, you know, these other guys in this melting pot in Southern California, he developed the infrastructure that later became the Esalen Institute and these other things, but he was writing from a libertarian slash esoteric Gnostic viewpoint. And so all of these uh, top libertarian leaders like Leonard Reed that formed the, you know, he would belong on the Mount Rushmore of American libertarianism. Uh, he became a disciple uh, of him as well, where they started having these mystical experiences. They would go to Bohemian Grove. They would go to other places, have out-of-body experiences. The guy who was the, he used to be the head spokesman for the, um, U.S. Chamber of Commerce and their main legal counsel took over for uh, uh, James Fifield running spiritual mobilization. 
he had this weird spiritual event where he encountered his dead daughter. He took on a name that was a sigil that meant Christopher. Um, he started getting involved with seances along with um, um, the gentleman, Bill Wilson, who founded uh, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, who also was a disciple of Gerald Hurd. He was the one who led them all into using um, recreational LSD. Yes, that's right. I remember. And, you know, the CIA, or the CEOs, uh, including Ampex and all these other West Coast uh, CEOs, were all using LSD back in the 50s. And they meant it to be an elite tool of the elites and only to use it for the lower classes to make them better workers. And so once you had... Um, you know, out on the West, out on the East Coast, they started, uh, Timothy Leary and others started making it available to the unwashed hippies. Well, then that's when they supported uh, making it illegal because they could still get their supplies, you know, themselves uh, through theirs. But uh, when you had uh, Luce, uh, Congressman Luce, uh, she was administered it by uh, um, Sydney, not Sydney Got, uh, yeah, Sydney Gottlieb, I believe. And, um, uh, her and her husband, who was the head of Time Magazine, uh, Gerald Hurd was center in getting them involved in all this. He was the one who got Aldous Huxley into taking peyote and then other entheogens uh, when he wrote The Doors of Perception. So this is this whole bizarre pot that led to a reprogrammed Christian community in America that began to see the government as evil, uh, any kind of worker assistance, jobs programs as evil, unions as evil, worker rights, worker safety. And uh, it really goes back to the roots of when they engineered this message from the ground floor, starting in the 1940s and 50s. Very interesting, Mike. And thank you for that, that, that fill in, because what it does is it solidifies what Russ had mentioned at the beginning of the program, that fascism is all about class and it's all about a, a, a class struggle. And uh, the narrative that you just introduced and, and the organizations and the, 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 that are needed in order to create this, this mystical understanding. Uh, Bannon is very much into this with Ebola. Ebola, uh, uh, which right. used, uh, the Thule Society, uh, was also used uh, in chaos type of ceremonies. Um, uh, there's always a, a mythical past, always a, uh, a mythical journey accompanying um, my right to have own the means of production and you're a slave. It's, it's, it's always, always packaged in there. Well, I need to clarify too, that in, in that, that last book I published, I show how this Christian media transitioned um, by the time of like the late fifties through the late seventies to becoming hardcore fascist. It, it went from, dabbling with esoteric Gnosticism and, and early Christian libertarianism, that's when uh, Billy James Hargis came along, oh, yeah. uh, got hooked up with Edwin Walker on the Operation Midnight Ride. You know, they were there in Dallas a couple of days before Kennedy got there and putting up posters with uh, crosshairs on his head and things like this. Uh, he was like the top Christian media figure in America. He was on hundreds of television programs, uh, radio waves, and this is the only kind of reach that spiritual mobilization had had before then. He was at the top. You had the Christian 20th Century Christian Reformation Hour 
uh, with Carl McIntyre that was part of this. You also had the cross and the flag that began reaching a lot of people with this hard right Christian message um, that um, Gerald L.K. Smith. Yeah, Gerald L.K. Smith, who originally had also been with uh, Long, the Kingfish, but also with the Silver Shirts. Right. Uh, he swung from that when Long died and went and uh, supported the Silver Shirts. That's right. Who had their own mystical kind of thing. But, you know, he became dominant. He had Christian schools he built. Um, he was a heavy hitter. And a lot of the guys who ran the religious right later, like Colonel Donner, whose book I have here, he was taught by all, he was taught the ropes by Billy James Hargis. And the thing that really hit Billy James Hargis at sort of the peak of his empire in the early seventies was that uh, time magazine did an expose and they had talked to a young man who'd gone to school there and had found a girl there who went to Christian school and they've got married. And I guess they sort of confessed their first time to each other. And they both found out they had lost their virginity to Billy James Hargis this hard right anti-gay firebrand they later found out that almost the entire boys choir at uh his christian university had lost their virginity to billy james hargis which which sort of puts him in common with edwin walker you know this other super macho kind of guy reminds me a lot of general boykin super macho guy you know who was arrested for sedition there and and uh of course billy james hargan was was also implicated by the fbi in the little rock bombings as well, too. But when Edwin Walker, when when he was arrested for sedition uh, and then later became this cult figure in supporting the hard right, you know, he was busted for soliciting police officers there in, in bathrooms and things like this. So it gets to be sort of like a recurring theme with a lot of these guys. The more macho they are, the more you expect this kind of stuff to, to come up. So um, and I could give you a lot more examples, but Gerald L.K. Smith, um, you know, who did the cross and the flag, who built um, uh, Christ of the Ozarks, that huge statue of Jesus that's there in the Ozarks, which yeah. now has become a center of gravity of the religious right. That's where like uh, Skywatch Television, uh, um, Tom Horn, a lot of their group do their activity. Uh, James uh, Jim Baker has now redone that in the same area of the Ozarks, their prophets. I saw one of their prophets on TV saying that this is going to be the one of the great areas of refuge for Christians there. And in uh, Moravian Falls, North Carolina and in Redding, California, where they're going to build like refuge to eventually take over the country and survive the deadly days that are coming. This was just in the last week they had this on, but we had Christ of the Ozarks there. You know, most of the Christians who make pilgrimages there, they watch passion plays, they go there and think it's a wonderful Christian thing. They don't realize that he's a Holocaust denier or who was, he's passed away, that um, he was extremely anti-Christ in about any way that you could imagine, but has the devotion of uninformed Christians. And I quoted in my book from his eulogy uh, and obituary in um, the New York Times, where he he talked about how gullible Christians are. You know, he says, you, you put them in my hand. He says, I'll get them foaming at the mouth. I'll give them fearful. I get them all these things. And he says, in no time, I'll teach them how to hate. Wow. And that's what all these groups did. They taught Christian people how to hate, how to hate their neighbor, how to be afraid of them. 
Um, this is the message, you know, we associate with the uh, Klan. Uh, right. The barbarians at the gate, they're coming to rape our white women. Right. And people still fall for it today. Everything I get in my in basket from Christian ministries, it's the same old tired template. They just fill in different names with it. It comes straight from clan literature. And it, and it has I, since, since the beginning of the formation of the U.S. Mm -hmm. Right. Hey, Mike, is there any, uh, any initiative uh, in this uh, uh, world where the NAM did in its own name, the National Association of Manufacturers, you know, the spiritual renewal uh, work as NAM, as opposed to leaders of NAM? You know, um, they were very careful about that. They were mostly a forum by which to network and put these people together. The NAM was where they actually had the meetings, where Pew got like the head of Chrysler, uh, the head of a few other of these funds, and that's where they met with Fifield and did their planning and did their, that kind of thing. Now, releasing a sheet of something and having their name on it, that's a different story. The, the main things where they did that were things like the Crusade for Freedom and right. those kind of activities that they would more overtly put, you know, where they would trot out, uh, you know, Jimmy Stewart or John Wayne and do these, you know. That was, that was more governmental, yeah. Right. Pseudo-religious kind of things. That's where they tended to put their name on it yes. uh, because it became a broader civil religion. Yes. This other kind of stuff is what they did behind closed doors where they put all of their senior figures together to yeah. make arrangements of who sends money to who. So that I'm sure that kept the paper trail a lot cleaner. When you mentioned Frigidaire a little while ago, I just uh, want to add a point that I believe at that point, Frigidaire was a subsidiary of General Motors. General Motors. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I hope I didn't. I'm, I'm speaking off the top of my head. My memory is getting worse. I, I have it documented in my in in my book. Some okay. of the, the key ones. I know Chrysler uh, was the head of it and some other, uh, you know, main uh, businesses of the 1950s uh, yeah. were behind this and realized the religious component had to be there. I, I began as a preamble to that discussion in my book about um, the whole movement they did to co-opt religion. Actually, I have to say our government did it. And then they brought in business figures, which, you know, the line between business and government is so vague. It's hard to say who, who pulls whose string, but um, yeah. when, when, when it started with uh, uh, president Truman uh, that commissioned, I think it was called the American heritage foundation, I believe where they released a report around 1947, 1948 called one nation under God. And they were so fearful in this report. I, and I, I, I quote them in my book, they were so fearful that Americans were going to like the look of communism, uh, the egalitarianism of it, the protection for workers, that they didn't feel like they had answers to the appeal. The appeal. And so what they said they had to do is focus on the atheism of the Bolsheviks and turn it into a holy war. And so they came up with this whole thing of one nation under God. It was decided in the boardrooms. They brought in the top propagandists from World War II, uh, OSS guys. Uh, they were brought in. Uh, burgeoning CIA were brought in. They had a few top uh, officials uh, from the top theologians. And in a smoke-filled room, 
they said, we're going to invent a backstory, a back history of America's divine destiny. All this stuff about um, uh, Washington praying in the snow at Valley Forge and God yes. saving them and all this stuff. And they started writing this stuff out. And the um, advertising council, you know, you see their public interest commercials all the time. Yes. They were known as the war advertising council just before that to <laughs> promote the war. Well, they were now known as the advertising council. They said, we can write copy for you to sell this. And that's where they began coming up with in God we trust on the money. It was all done within a couple of years time. Yeah. They put one nation under God in the, in the uh, Pledge of Allegiance. Right, right. And they wouldn't even allow debate on the floor of Congress. They said it was uh, um, unpatriotic to even debate. But we were, you know, again, again, putting in historical context, you had McCarthyism in 1952. Okay, you had the, the, the attack on the Soviet Union right, right after World War II, godless communism, uh, the, the development of all these subgroups from the John Birch all the way on. Everything was anti-communism, anti-Sovietism. And of course, it all worked well in building the uh, militarized state that we live in now. Right. And that's why I, I would say that, you know, military Keynesianism, which is basically where we are right now. Everything goes in the military. Military Keynesianism is fascism. It is absolutely fascism. And they they needed a story and a mythological past and somebody rolling in the snow during 1776 to make all this stuff work because the the facts are not good enough. You Mm got to have a narrative. You got to have a fairy tale that goes with it. And that's what all fascism has in common, all of it. What uh, after, happened, you know, after the changes of the 60s and early 70s, they started uh, uh, trying to rebuild that um, uh, through the Reconstructionists. Again, people like Rush Dooney, who's birth right. society in one hand and Reconstructionists in the other. Right. Uh, they start uh, rebuilding uh, a movement to sell that. And I'm trying to remember the name who of the guy who did the book and, you know, did the organizing of it, you know, that uh, America was a Christian nation, you know, which uh, I can't remember uh, his name. Well, I mean, he wasn't alone by any chance. Right. Dobson and all of them filled in, but they, they were all starting to promote his, uh, his in his book. Right. Gary North really helped Rush Dooney sell a lot of this. Um, Uh, David, um, they were family. Yeah. yeah, David, I'm trying to, yeah, yeah. Son-in-law, um, Barton, David Barton is the guy in the modern day who's really made quite a lot of coin off of like basically making this his brand about the Christian nation. Yeah. And he's fast. used to be a Republican operative. Then suddenly he became a religious leader. And this is the guy who, um, um, the Mormon, um, uh, Glenn Beck, he's the guy who has him on all the times. He, he's, he's his main uh, patron for that. But I just wanted to mention a couple of these boards in the late 40s in yeah. 1950, just to give you the name to let you know how dystopian this is. One of the groups I quote about uh, to try to use religion to win the Cold War says in 1951, I'm quoting from my book, Truman set up the Psychological Strategy Board 
PSB comprising the CIA, Departments of State and Defense, and others, and studied, quote, the potential role of religion in psychological warfare. And their report that I quote from says, quote, the potentialities of religion as an instrument for combating communism are universally tremendous. Religion is an established force which calls forth men's strongest emotions. Our overall objective in seeking the use of religion as a Cold War instrumentality should be the furtherance of world spiritual health. And um, they called for use of the United States Information and Education Exchange, uh, an overt psychological program authored by Congress in 48 to cultivate the image of the U.S. And they established a three-person council of religious leaders to investigate, quote, the moral and religious factors of psychological warfare. And this also work that the OSS did. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they participated in this and then their CIA forebears. It says that the report recommended that public leaders emphasize the historic and continuing influence of religion on American society, the spiritual roots of U.S. institutions and the religious component of major holidays. Now, they also had something they called the ideological subcommittee on the religious factor, another dystopian organization. And that's all in your book, right? Yeah, yeah, it's all documented here. And in fact, 1952, even the National Education Association got on board. They right. formed the teacher education and religion thing to promote religion in it. But a, a similar group um, that, again, has this kind of dystopia to it. Um, there was another group I quote here, the Foundation for Religious Action in Social and Civil Order or FRASCO. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you think of that name, Foundation for Religious Action in Social and Civil Order, had members such as Billy Graham, Henry Ford II, Herbert Hoover and others. Um, yeah. And even Catholic newspapers by the mid 50s were, were, were saying that, hey, there's far much loose talk about God in America has heard these days and schemes that religion should be cultivated as a potent instrument in the Cold War, and that Almighty is enlisted in the Army of the Free World for the duration, and they were warning about this. Huh. And, and so this, this was the critical time. They, they brought in one of the guys to help make this happen was the chairman uh, of uh, General Mills, who used to be a former OSS agent, General Lucius Clay, oh, yeah. who was the military governor over Berlin. Right. Uh, you know, who's an ideal guy to figure out how to keep major psychological operations ongoing in a powder keg, you know, situation. Yeah. And he was brought in to help sell this as a religious holy war. Mm -hmm. Like Syria. Okay. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, there's a whole lot more in this. I talk about the Freedom Scroll, how they had dictated for people in church to come up to the altar and sign the Freedom Scroll of basically loyalty to the state um, right on the altars themselves. And they would do this on what they declared Freedom Sunday, where, where they would have to do this. And, uh, you know, this is the kind of stuff as a practicing follower of Christ that I denounce. And, you know, anything I can do in my little circle to shine a light and blow the whistle on it is really what my, what my goal is. Well, you just have quite a bit, and I really appreciate your rundown. It was concise and uh, very easy to understand. Um, I, I don't know how much longer you want to go, Stephen. 
but it just an insight came to me that I just want to share it with you. I don't know if it's true, um, but from what I'm able to understand is that um, Klaus Schwab, who's come out with the Great Reset, okay, he's got um, uh, uh, ties to uh, uh, eugenics and Nazis as well. I'm looking at the website in front of me. It's a uh, uh, it's just something that I thought that, to throw out here uh, as we're talking about these people that uh, Klaus, Klaus Schwab uh, is part of the uh, uh, the Escher Weiss company protected not only by Hitler, but by Switzerland, Britain and America, making Schwab a criminal foreign meddler in every sense. These people will use everything they can psychologically against us uh, from Cicada. Uh, to, uh, uh, you know, uh, these various organizations, anything they can do to make sure that we do not question why one-tenth of one percent of the world population controls the entire means of production in society. Right. Yeah. They, they dictate the terms of our existence. Yes. That's right. 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 They don't um, want us to know how we produce or reproduce our life. Okay. Or they, if it's capitalism is Christianity. Christianity is capitalism, and anything outside that zone is evil, bad, etc. We will sign off then, uh, as always. I appreciate you guys for listening, and uh, hopefully we will be back here in a few weeks with the third installment with Danny and myself and possibly one other guest. We are going to do a specific focus on this one in Latin America. It's going to be really great. We are going to look at all the stuff from Perón on to uh, Colonia Dignidad, Operation Condor, the use of the epic Nazis in there, the drug trade, and even some of the obscure cults that show up in a lot of this. It's going to be jam-packed with a lot of crazy information, and uh, hopefully we'll shine a light on some of this stuff. Uh, So anyway, thank you guys so much for listening, and on that note, good night and good luck to you all.